Hi, this is Chris Wyatt from Marvel Spider-Man and Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that just needs another cut, because you can never have too many cuts. I'm your host Craig and we're here to discuss Zack Snyder's Justice League, the long-awaited, long-anticipated, long-campaigned for alternate version of a film that we've already seen. In order to discuss it, I've pulled together the same team I did last time, because you have to. And first up, he longs for the days where films had lines about exploding wind-up penguins. It's Aaron. So I'm not sure we've done this intro properly here. What music is playing slowly as I come on to scene here? Because if I haven't got good music, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to do an intro here. It has to be a melancholy cover of a pop song. That's the so way I get to pick my pop song. Right, okay. I'm totally going to do that. But otherwise, hello. By the way, you missed a joke there. You're going to have to edit in after you said the long-awaited, long this, long that, long the other. You didn't get in long film for somebody who loves puns cannot believe you missed that it's now been called out that i missed it so i'm not perfect that's why i need a team just like batman so next up we're interrupting his brunch for this although maybe brunch isn't mentioned it's chris hello sorry for interrupting your brunch i do love myself a brunch it does feel like a delayed breakfast or perhaps an early lunch so you're not missing much (laughs) perhaps so let's just start Zack Snyder's Justice League, let's just dive into spoiler-free territory. So, Aaron, what did you think of this? And, as a sub-question, is it better or worse than the theatrical cut? Or can you not remember the theatrical I, I cut I can't at all? really remember the theatrical prop properly for a blow-by-blow, blow, but I love a sub-question, so I'm all into this. Overall, I'm glad I got a chance to see this film, because if I've got time to watch it, I would say it's a better film and I would go back to this one by preference to the other one. It's not necessarily something I can compare scene by scene, but I think we'll go into the details about just having more time to tell the story. It is proven to be so necessary that I'm now at the point where I'm thinking you can't really watch the other film when you know what's supposed to have been said. So I'm not sure I thought this was the best film ever and it's made my life better, but it's a vast improvement on the other one, certainly for me. Well, one thing this film definitely has is time to tell its story. That is definitely not in dispute. The other film, not so much. But yeah, we'll get into some comparisons. Maybe we can jog your memory as we go as to what the other film did or didn't do. We'll see how much or how well you remember it as we go. Chris, same question and same sub-question. I do enjoy this more than the original theatrical release. I think Aaron's right that you do get more time in this film. I do think some of that time, (laughs) however, is wasted time and maybe detail that we don't need or full-blown attic and conservatory conversions that are unnecessary. However, I would really prefer the theatrical version of this over the theatrical version that we did get. Well, a bit of editing, this is a far fuller film. Yeah, and obviously this isn't what would have been released at the time. We wouldn't have got a four-hour 
experience, it would have probably been around the three-hour mark, most likely, had it been released in this form or a similar form at the time. Definitely. My view is, same as you guys, it's a much better viewing experience. It's much more cohesive. It's much clearer what's actually intended to be going on rather than chopping and adding stuff in and forcing stuff in and forcing it down to a particular running time. So it's way better than the original for me. And I did enjoy it in its own right. So it's not that I thought the original was on this level and this one is better than it by default. I got a lot out of it when I was watching it, more than I expected. I'm sure any listeners to previous news roundups will have heard us kind of not looking forward to it as the trailers were being released. So it's interesting that we're all here saying that we enjoyed it or preferred it in Chrissy's case. You haven't really said you enjoyed it. So that's interesting. We'll get into what you might or might not have enjoyed about it. Excellent. So now that we've answered that, should we go straight into the spoiler section, activate the spoiler signal and congregate on a rainy rooftop so that we can talk spoilers about this film? I love the sound of that. Let's do that. Can we have a magic beamy thing from the sky that's never explained? Can we have that, please? Yeah, sure. Why not? Sky beams. That's what they did in Blockbusters at the time. And probably still now. Right, now we can talk freely about the Snyder Cut. So we do have some big questions that we should address and we'll keep referring back to as we're going. So I came up with a a short list of stuff that is important to discuss. First up... Is this too long, or would you say it works as a four-hour experience in its own right? So, Aaron, you go first. What do you think of the whole structure and how long it is and how the story plays out and how it's paced and all that stuff? I will agree with Chris that there's stuff in there that I did not feel like I needed to see. So, is it too long? Yes, it's still too long for me. I don't know that I would also ever want to sit down to a single four-hour viewing. And I was caught out by the chapters, actually. I'd, I'd sort of got it into my head that I was going to be able to watch chapter by chapter. I mean, you could. Physically, you could. But I, I think I still was surprised by how long. I think the last chapter is just massive, isn't it? Or they're shorter at the start, and then they become longer. So it wasn't distinct chaptered viewing. So I think the structure caught me out slightly, but it might be because I just made stuff up in my own head. But either way, I wouldn't enjoy a four-hour experience that I couldn't easily cut up. And I think I could have cut certain parts of this and still have been happy. The big thing for me is the, I'm going to call it the epilogue. It's essentially an introduction to another film. I got a bit of a Titanic vibe with that. Oh, oh, you started a new film. Wait a minute, where's the controller? I need to stop here because I don't want to see this. And then I decided I actually kind of didn't want to see this. I don't think there was anything in the epilogue. that. (laughs) I mean, not that I don't want to see that film. I think I could watch that film, but not here at the end of several hours. It seems like it's become wrong somehow in producers' or directors' minds to have an ending and I know they've not picked up Marvel's end credit scene and mid credit scene and after the credits scene with some popcorn and all this. They've not tried to copy that, but they've still said, and here's the next film in their epilogue. And it's an extra film. It's not sufficiently connected to me to what's going on. Maybe Martian Manhunter's fine. Teaser. But that's all I wanted, a teaser at that point. And I think... Chris is probably going to give you a list of things what I would have cut throughout that I'm probably going to agree (laughs) with. 
for the most part, but you've already sort of mentioned the trope to us in the build-up, which obviously we've not spoken to in front of the listeners, but the need to push the fast-forward button during certain scenes that will get mentioned. I mean, I understand that the actress they picked to play Iris, I assume it's Iris, is very attractive. I got that, but I actually managed to get how beautiful she was in quite a short time, actually seeing that close-up on her eyes going slowly over. Oh my God, she's the... I'm already bored. No, sorry. All the stuff that he released for his promos, the really slow pop music that you know, talked about in the introduction, just cut it. What value is it, really? I know Jason Momoa is really hot. I don't need to see him walk for 10 minutes into this crashing wave. He is a gorgeous man. I'll give you that straight away. That is never in doubt from anyone. What value do I actually get from him walking slowly into a crashing wave? Anyway, I'm stealing Chris's thunder. He just probably ticked off his list already, but he's probably got loads more. So so jump, jump to Chris and, and get the cut list. So you didn't think it was an entirely satisfying four-hour experience? Mostly it was. It was more good than bad. It's just the fact that when you are sitting there for four hours, which I could not do... I think it would have ruined part of the rest of the film for me. If, if I'd have actually tried to sit there and watch for that solid time, I would not be feeling good and comfortable and feeling like I could concentrate. And I'm someone who hates the internet lifestyle. I have gotten rid of Facebook. I can't stand this moving from something to something in a short time frame. So I, I don't honestly believe I'm part of this rapid breed uh, rapid breeding what's that <laughs> this rapid living population that if you've had five seconds you're bored i can focus i can concentrate i'm old so i've got that skill from ages ago you know and it hasn't been sort of beaten out of me by internet living but despite even that i'm not sure i would have enjoyed the last hour after having watched for three hours already so i would still shorten it as a viewing experience even having more loved it than not so how did you consume it i tried to stick to the chapters when i saw a chapter heading that would be the choice point for me to say do i want to keep going or not but i didn't view it as a chapter by chapter if i had a bit more time then i might have done two chapters at the start but then that wasn't possible, I found later on, because I'm sure I'd convinced myself it was four chapters. And then it got to sort of two hours in, and I was already on chapter four, and I was thinking, what? Hang on a minute, what's going on here? There, there must be eight chapters. I'm sure the chapters aren't equal length, so I tried to do that. They're not, no. I had to just cut it at a scene change at one point, when I wasn't in the middle of a, a piece of plot or exposition. My first viewing, I watched it in one night. But I did take a bit of a break around about the two hour mark. Can't remember what chapter number it is, but it does cut off at a specific mm. point. And it's after Steppenwolf, I think, has the vision about the anti-life equation. I think after that, it's at the end of a chapter and it's roughly about the halfway mm. point of the film. So after that, I went and got a cup of tea and made a snack and whatever before I came back. And then I watched the remaining two hours. If you split it in two, it works in that respect but yeah there are different ways to view it but as you say if you're trying to watch it chapter by chapter chapter one isn't very long at all and then you get chapter two which is a different line and so on so yeah it doesn't neatly divide i suppose but you could do it in two two hour chunks which makes it two films in effect 
which is fine, I think. I think that's a valid way of watching it. And I can't help but wonder what would have happened under normal circumstances had this come out in the cinema. Would they have made us take a half hour or so break at the two hour mark when we started watching it at, I don't know, four in the afternoon because it's so long? I've had breaks in films before. I'm sure long films in the cinema have actually done that before. So I can imagine that they would, whether it comes with a director's suggestion for where to stop it or not, I I don't know. But I have experienced that before and I would need that most definitely in order to have enjoyed this in the cinema. Endgame three hours, that's about the limit, isn't it? Anything above that, you're really struggling to maintain your bladder if nothing else so chris what's your thoughts on it as a four-hour experience i am a bit like you craig i watched it the first time pretty much fully through with a little break or a little intermission to go and get more snacks or whatnot to watch the rest like i said at the beginning i think it's too long as a full thing i think you're right this is very much made for the video on demand market it was not made for theatrical release If it was put out, it would be an intermission. It used to be that you would get intermissions in films because they had to change all the reels over. (laughs) They weren't able to keep the projections running for long enough. But with the digital age now, they can stretch that, stretch that, and oh, stretch it, they do. I'm totally with Aaron on the epilogue. The epilogue was totally unnecessary. And I think the epilogue hurts even more when you know the fact that many of these things are very, very unlikely to happen. I get that the idea was that we are seeing what he would have put on screen if he had had the chance. He might still get the chance, let's not say never, 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 but I get that the idea is you're going to see in entirety exactly what was going to be put on. I do not think they would have teased all the films. They They tease about four different films with the ending of the Snyder (laughs) Cut. Aquaman's going off to do his thing, Okay, we got to see that. You get The Flash is going to do his thing. Okay, so we're we're getting that. <laughs> they tease that Deathstroke is going to go after Batman. Lex Luthor is plotting shenanigans. And then we get the, in the future, things go to hell. <laughs> you know, And we get that yeah. plot line as well, where you've got Batman teaming up with villains. So you're like, Okay, so that's all the different things. Plus, Martian Manhunter lurking, being Martha, apparently. (laughs) So, Martian Manhunter lurking about doing his stuff. There's a lot teased in this film. It's too much. It's way too much. And I don't think half of that ever would have been put into the film because they would have just sat and went, why don't we focus on actually releasing this one first, shall we? I know that they like to tease stuff in these films. I know that Marvel like to tease at the end of theirs. But you're talking about normally a couple of little cutscenes. You're not talking about 40 minutes worth of stuff at the end of the film to go, right, let's tease this idea and now this idea and now this idea and now this idea. But even if we accept the epilogue as the conservatory or the extension getting thrown onto the end of the house anyway, there's a lot of other wasteful spaces in here. In the the last podcast, we said that we'd like a bit more of an introduction to the characters and a little bit more in-depth. I think some of that time has been used to give Cyborg a way better backstory than he had in the first one. In the first one, he was simply a, a MacGuffin and an exposition machine. In this, you get a lot more of his backstory He's served a lot better with this plot. However, the additional time that's given to some of the other characters is just wasted space. We get umpteen Aquaman scenes where he's travelling across the ocean chatting to different people that's unnecessary. We get an extra rescue scene, longer rescue scene that we don't really need because we've already been told about that. The Flash 
scene where he rescues, I'm going to say Iris in inverted commas because that's never mentioned. Her name is not mentioned at any point, right? It's in the credits, though. If you read the credits, then sure. yeah, Iris West. But it is never said on screen. They don't have a conversation. They literally cross paths as he's interviewing to be a dog walker. I don't need to see that scene. I don't need any of that. It adds zero apart from the fact that he rescues a person it shows that he's willing to rescue a person which we've already seen we've seen that video that bruce has got of him helping someone out in a corner shop we already know that he's decided that he's going to help people with his powers so we don't need to see slow motion scenes of seeds falling off of burger buns onto the floor of a truck (laughs) i don't need it i don't need sausage gags i don't need lingering touching someone in slow motion creepily even though you've not got their consent i don't need that it doesn't really add much than what we've got already so whole things like that can go off and don't get me started on the songs aaron you didn't mention the icelandic ballad (laughs) if there is a piece of this film that can get chopped and head straight into the sea along with aquaman it's the icelandic ballad i remember the first time i saw the film i've seen it twice once we're Mm. taking and the first time i saw it when the ballad kicked in okay we'll get a few seconds of this and it's it's still going why is it still going? It's going for so, so long. And you go, this is unnecessary. Some of the shots in this film look amazing. I cannot take that away from this film. It looks brilliant. The framing of certain shots, fantastic. However, the amount of establishing shots that you get, it's he's used Every single establishing shot he made, you don't get one angle of something as they approach a scene. You get every angle from the air, from the (laughs) ground, from the car, from the pedestrian view, from the left, from the right. You get every establishing shot and then you go into the scene. I don't need all these establishing shots. The Icelandic mountains look brilliant. I don't need to 3D print them using your film. I don't need to see the entire route that the white vans take to get to the Old Bailey in London. I will trust that they drove in London. That's fine. I need a shot of white vans pulling up. That's what I need. That's fine. An establishing shot saying, it's London. An establishing shot saying, white vans, bad men. There you go. I don't need to watch the entire white van trailing its way through. Don't need that at all. Also, don't need to say slow motion shots of coffee being made. (laughs) I've got so many. I won't go on because I will be here for the rest of the podcast just simply listing my wasted time, which is wasting your time as a listener. But just so you feel a little bit of my pain, there is the beginning of my list. Just to say on that, the reason I didn't mention it is because I don't think there was a dance number. I'm not bothered about singing. I'm not interested in who's singing this, that, and the other. But if they wanted to do some sort of dance number with the Justice League all doing their bit, I'd be totally up for that. <laughs> Who would dance? That's a question. The Flash would dance, wouldn't he? He's that cheesy character. I don't know. The Flash would have some moves, and Cyborg could do disco lights using his head hologram thing. Cyborg could do the robot. Hey. Even though he's not a robot, he's a cyborg, I know. But still, he could do it. Why not? I'd like to see Batman dancing. That would be new. (laughs) Once again, though, you're going to come across the problem that Marvel's already done it, given that we've just had the Falcon and Winter Soldier. It's too late. Marvel have already done it. They've already done everything. (laughs) My view is I do think it's too long. Although when I first watched it, 
I actually viewed it a little bit more as a mini series. Like in my mind, I felt like it was a mini series. I wasn't particularly training myself to think in that way. I just felt like that. But I think in the way it's edited, there's something about television about it. Obviously, very high budget television. But there is something very TV about it because the scenes are very long, the conversations are very long, all that stuff. It feels to me more like a TV show than a film, which maybe means that Snyder's failed because he wanted to make a film, but I don't know. I don't know what the decision was to do this as a big four-hour thing. I guess the original intent was to release it in chunks and then they changed their minds and now we have what this is. I'm not sure, but yes, it's definitely too long. There's definitely a lot of bloat in there that can be cut. Icelandic ballads, for example, or the Amazonians performing a ritual so that they can fire an arrow over a long distance. That's quite a long sequence that we don't really need. Stuff like that. There's bits and pieces that just don't need to be there. There's some repeated information. Chris, you already mentioned Aquaman swimming about, having conversations with people. His conversation with Mira and his conversation with Volko, I think his name is, Willem Dafoe's character, is essentially the same conversation. It's all around accepting your destiny, protecting the Atlanteans, being part of different worlds, honouring your mother. It's the same information, really. So it doesn't need to be done twice. And which is the better of the two? I don't know. They're both about the same. Yeah, it's pretty much been told the same thing twice. It's you should actually be getting involved in doing more around about here, and this is an issue that you should actually be paying attention to, maybe get involved some. It didn't need that much more. And then even the sort of ending tag they put on his story where he's helping someone load lobster pots into the back of a car that wasn't particularly needed either you just need him disappearing off and you know that he's going to go off and do something don't you he's made his decision to get involved so you don't need any additional bits on there it's weird watching this having seen aquaman as a film though Mm. and seeing how visually different the two things are the colors are more muted and willem dafoe has long unkempt hair and stuff like that but also mira's british accent that she has in this film Mm. for some reason that she doesn't have in the Aquaman movie. So it'd be interesting to see how the DC films would have played out had this happened and how different they would have been. I'm not sure it would have been better. I don't know that the Aquaman film that we got would have been worse than whatever the Snyder extrapolated version of Aquaman as a film would have been. Because in some cases, they made things like Aquaman the way they were or Shazam as a reaction to this in terms of changing the tone and so on. So... I don't know. Be interesting to visit that alternate universe where they just carried on with their plan and made a very grim and gritty Aquaman film. I'm trying to remember now for Aquaman, but did he ever speak to his dad? Was that not how this film left it? Which was, go off and speak to your dad. Yes, I will go and speak to my dad. That doesn't happen in Aquaman, does it? Isn't the dad gone by the time we get to Aquaman? No, in Aquaman, the dad's there. He's always there. He's in his lighthouse. Tamara Morrison. Jango Fett himself in his lighthouse. All right, yeah. Okay. No, no, no. No, it's his mother that's it's believed dead. the mother dead. that's believed dead, yeah. And in Aquaman, it turns out she's not dead. Ignore me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes off in the pickup truck to maybe go see his dad, but in Aquaman, the film, he visits his dad all the time. They go and have beers and so on. It would be a very different slate of films had this actually came out and they hadn't reacted to different things. Yeah, okay. So we've answered the question of, is it too long? So... I guess we just move to characters now. So we'll start with the leader of the pack with Batman or Bruce Wayne himself. Slightly different in this film. In the 
theatrical cut, he's trying to react to a problem that's already here. Whereas in this one, it's more he's trying to future-proof the world against a problem that he believes is coming based on what he was told in Batman v Superman. And I think that distinction is important, actually, because it does make sense that he takes his time trying to research these things. He doesn't know where to find these people. He's really worried about what the future holds and what the world's going to be like without Superman and all that stuff. So I think the idea of putting a team together to prepare for a problem that hopefully will never come, but it's nice to have a team of superheroes in case it does. I like that approach. It meant that the early scenes of him going from place to place, just sort of slowly recruiting people while the other plot bubbled along in the background worked well enough. It just means that it made more sense that he was taking his time. I'm not convinced that his motivation is as strong as it actually is in the theatrical cut, though, but I'll definitely get to that because there's an important difference there that I find more interesting in terms of the way that Bruce Wayne thinks in that film. So I don't have this exact comparison that I think you're going to go on to, which is potentially one of the most interesting points from what you've said, but I can say that to me, any cost that's paid by changing Batman's motivation is more than recouped in the whole film because everybody's motivations now seem to hang together better. In fact, the whole film to me hangs together better because of this structure they've gotten at the lowest detailed level of where the lines make sense anymore. For example, the joke that is, what did you do at the weekend with Wonder Woman in the original film? It's not funny because you just get told that she has a boring life, but actually she's saving the world. In this one, you see that she's pretending to have a boring life, but she's actually saving the world. So that's actually now funny rather than just this throwaway thing that you were just supposed to cheekily know. And then at, at the top level, everybody's having a reason to come together to solve a singular problem means that this whole film has a purpose from start to end. So maybe any individual character is being slightly sacrificed, but it is a team film. So it doesn't sound on paper to me that the change to Batman is going to be a massive cost. But I realise that I'm not quite sure what this is, whereas you could go into it in greater detail, maybe. I think it's more appropriate when we talk about Wonder Woman to talk about the change to Batman, because I think the way that Joss Whedon's alteration to the film uses their dynamic does a really good job of showing how they approach this whole team thing and what actually motivates Bruce Wayne to pull into it or what's motivated Bruce Wayne to create it in the first place. So in this, it's very much a, I think a problem is coming. Superman is dead. So we need to prepare, which is sensible. The reason that seems to make sense to me a lot more though, is because I don't think it's as vague as we've maybe made out here. He knows a problem is coming. I'm sure it's more definite than that. It's not the, we might need somebody at some point. He doesn't know when. That's the difference. In the Justice League version, one of the early scenes is him flushing out a parademon, so he knows the problem's already there. Whereas in this one, he doesn't know when it's coming. But that's important enough to mention, because then he does know it is coming. He knows he needs something at some point. It is just a matter of when, and it's therefore a bit of a race against time. Can he get to this before the problem comes? So... To me, that's an urgency. It's almost a race against time. 
although it is a bit delayed, it's not immediate, but on the galactic scale, needing somebody in a few months is pretty urgent. So I think he's got good purpose, and I think it's clear from this that I knew why he was doing what he was doing, whereas if in the old one it was, there's a scary creature somewhere. Well, to be perfectly honest, in some of the alleyways of Gotham City, you've seen scarier than a parademon. I'm not really bothered by that <laughs> thing. Oh, it flies. Yeah, well, do you know what? I'll list you a bunch of Batman villains that can fly. It's got a funny face. Whatever else you've got on that list, I've got it covered. <laughs> it's just better here to have this threat that is known, I think. Even from the start of this film, I felt like I knew the direction they were going in. And more importantly, why they were doing it, which in the first version of it, it really felt more like we're doing this because we feel we have to, because the plot demands it. It wasn't shown to me. Maybe it was given to me and and I just didn't pay enough attention, but this felt more solid. It felt more coherent and it felt like I was aware as an audience member what the stakes were. I like that it's him pulling the team in. I like the line, I think he says it to Alfred, is that he made a, a promise to Clark on his grave that he would make sure that everyone stayed protected. And that's another one of his motivations is basically, we need to replace Superman somehow. And the only way I can do it is by pulling in all these other powerful people who all have a little bit of Superman's skill set because there's no way he could do it by himself. So there's the sort of motivation for pulling everyone together. I like it. I didn't feel it was missing the sense of urgency. He seems to already have that sense of, no, I do need to pull these people together because he is working at it. He's not giving up and going, oh, well, I couldn't find that guy. He treks for, was it six days over the mountains just to have a chat with Aquaman. (laughs) He's committed to the job. You know what I mean? He's not, oh, well, well, I can get around to this in a few days. Yeah, it's the Bruce Wayne way, isn't it? Mm. Whenever he has something to do, he'll throw himself 110% into it. I do think there was greater urgency in the theatrical cut, although there had to be because it was a two-hour film and they had to get moving very, very quickly, whereas here it's a bit more deliberate. But the, the fact that the threat was already there increases that urgency by itself, whereas it's a bit more ominous, I guess, because it's in the distance. We don't know when it's coming. We know it's coming, but we don't know when it's coming. And you're getting bits and pieces in the background that are pointing towards it. But then Bruce doesn't have that information, which also increases that urgency as well, because we know it's on its way, whereas Bruce kind of doesn't, because he doesn't have access to all the information he needs in order to to get it going. And I did quite like how difficult he found finding people as well. So the, the Aquaman thing takes him ages. And then Barry Allen... He doesn't know what Barry can do, and he doesn't really know it's him. The facial recognition is kind of dodgy, so he doesn't quite find him. He isn't quite sure it's him initially, so I quite like that. I like that there was a challenge associated with it rather than the, yeah, whatever, he just posted on Facebook and here he is. I found him. Yeah, I still find it weird the way Barry is living. I mean, it explains why he was difficult to find, because he's kind of off the grid in a railway yard or a depot somewhere in the extra time that we get where he's interviewing to become a dog walker i mean is that how he's planning to pay for his weird off-site at a railway yard oh he's clearly a super villain he's stolen so much computer (laughs) kit and technology but he needs a job as a dog walker no that's just a cover he needs a job just so the police don't come for him so he's got an alibi for where he stole all this (laughs) kit from 
because he can. He's got the speed. He just nips into a lab, steals it, gone. He can steal whatever he likes. But there's a story there about how he turns from supervillain to superhero, I think. <laughs> how does Barry Allen get his start? You won't find out in the Flash movie because it's going to have so many Batman in it that you won't have time to yeah. actually deal with any of these issues. I mean, he does say that he does web design as well, which explains the 20 million computers he's got for oh, some reason. Uh, no. <laughs> Cover story. <laughs> <laughs> Sign language. He maybe does a bit of sign language work on the side. Cover story alibi. His dad does say he's working three crummy Cover jobs. Story alibi. He needs an alibi <laughs> at all times of the day, so he's got a job that he can put forward for any eight-hour slot. Where were you? Here. doesn't matter if it's real or not, because he can get there at any point he likes. Okay, so we've established that the Flash is a criminal. Well, he was. He's reformed. Batman reformed him. He's reformed. The Batman money helps him. As soon as Batman walked in, Barry was so inspired by becoming a superhero that he left his bad ways behind. Well, there's a reading of the character that the film doesn't either support or deny, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) The film doesn't tell you that he's not a criminal. Yeah, doesn't tell you that he is. He did steal those hot dogs. This is it, then. That's all you need, I'm convinced. In this modern <laughs> age where we punish somebody based on what somebody put on Facebook, that's enough to convict. <laughs> Poor Barry. So I guess we can bring in Wonder Woman just now. I think she's far worse than she is in any of her films in this film because she's just a ancient exposition machine, really. That's all she's there for is to tell you what's going on and tell you what the history of all this is. And she has to get that history by grabbing an arrow from a Greek from a from a Greek museum site and put it in the wall somewhere and read it all off the wall. Whereas again in the other version she just knows it. And we're happy with the fact that she just knows it because we know where she's from. We don't need to see her learning that information really, but I think there's a lot of time spent with her just telling us things about mother boxes or about dark side or about whatever you're not going to be wrong with that i don't think i was so caught up by other parts of wonder woman's scenes that i don't think i was watching that because she was one of the most surprising characters for me in this and i don't know if it's for the right or wrong reasons but i can't go into that without mentioning that this film i think sets the power levels of the characters so much better than other shows that I've seen. One of the big reasons for the couldn't watch the DC TV shows is because everybody's power level changes according to what the plot needs. Whereas I think in this film, they set the power levels so well relative to each other and consistent that you're never thinking he would have been able to get around that. She could have beaten that or what's going on. There's only one point where the power levels completely fail to me, which is... She can drop hundreds of feet in high heels and land perfectly, which indicates to me that she must be the most powerful character in the universe to not have any trouble. And she doesn't break the high heels. So she actually manages to land (laughs) just on the front of her feet with this big thump and echoing noise, and the shoes are fine. So other than that one strange scene... The power levels are good. Amazonian textiles are good. Yeah, Amazonian heels. This is what you need. Put that on eBay. Other websites are available. But the thing that surprised me more, I guess, in a bit of a more serious note, is I never really thought of her as a warrior before, which I know sounds stupid, so I will explain it. Maybe I'm so used to Marvel 
when people get defeated, they get knocked over. When the big hacksaw blade comes flying towards somebody, it still doesn't cleave them in twain. It just knocks them over. That's a setup of superhero shows. A fireball goes in off in the hero's face. She just gets knocked backwards and falls over. There's no skin burner. That's just one of the rules and the conceits of this universe. So I'm so bought into that superhero style of show. Then when Wonder Woman brutally murders people, I just thought, oh, I kind of wasn't expecting that. But I feel like I should have been because she is an ancient warrior. Back in the days of Greek legend, if someone comes at you with a sword, you cut them down. There's none of this, oh, let's try and reform them. The legends, the myths don't mention Odysseus sitting the Cyclops down and having a lovely chat. That's not the way it's done. It doesn't do any Freudian analysis of the Cyclops. You just go for these things. So it actually really fits the character. But somehow I was so surprised to see it that that was my main takeaway from Wonder Woman. Especially because her scene when she comes into, is it the museum? And she's tackling those terrorists. The last terrorist, she defeats with massive overkill. To the extent that when she blows up the side of the building to kill him, let's make that clear, she has definitely killed all of these terrorists. She blasts out so much rock that the police in the area below have to run for it because they would also be under threat. It's massive Maybe not wanton damage, because maybe the wrist guards were all she had available, so it was that or let the guard fire. I, t- I totally get that. But again, that's a warrior's choice. You attack and you kill and you put them down. That really stayed with me throughout the whole film, especially because she's the one at the end that kills Steppenwolf. Again, I feel like I'm not used to that. I know people do get killed in even like the Marvel films, but they somehow get killed in a nice way, I think. They disintegrate so there's no blood and guts everywhere. They get absorbed into a stone. It's somehow not visceral. It's not horrible. But in this, it felt like it was a bit more brutal with a head rolling at the end of Steppenwolf. And you pretty much, I think, only see that with Wonder Woman, because when they're fighting the parademons, they get knocked by a laser blast and they fly off screen. You don't really see anything. I mean, maybe I'm adding more to this than I thought. So Wonder Woman and Aquaman were the ones who were, let's make nice light films. People don't like the dark and gritty, so let's make it all nice and lovely and charming again. And then here comes Wonder Woman. By the way, you're dead. Here's my sword through your face. So it, <laughs> it, it seems to not go against that style of filmmaking, but still be a big surprise to me somehow. I had the brutality of her actions in my notes as well, but from a slightly different perspective. So I'm happy with the fact that she's a brutal warrior who is used to just killing people. So when you're watching that scene of her saving all the hostages, she's throwing people into the wall and there's blood spatters and they're clearly dead. And then she vaporizes that guy at the end. But then they seem to try and paint her as an inspirational figure after that point. You have the little girl saying, can I be like you when I grow up? And she says, you can be whatever you want to be. You've just seen her vaporize a man unnecessarily. You could have done anything. You could have done anything to stop this guy. He wasn't a threat. He was one guy. He was reloading his gun, I think. He just wasn't a threat to you. You can't really have her be this inspirational figure that children look up to after she just brutalized a room full of people. (laughs) It doesn't work. And so that was such a shock to me 
the idea that she was then a mouthpiece for the story. I don't think I recovered well enough to notice that. You're going to be <laughs> right. I'm not challenging you. I'm just saying I was so shocked. I don't think I noticed. Yeah, it's definitely one of those changes. When you're talking about the blood spatter and the usual thing of a saw blade goes towards someone and they get knocked back rather than cleaved in two is normally because of the age rating. Yeah. As soon as you start showing blood, you lose your 12A rating and that's it. You're done. A lot of the stuff that you see in other films, you're like, yeah, that would be very gory. Even the noises sometimes, they manage to get away <laughs> close. And I think they're allowed one swear word in a 12A, stuff like that. Yeah. So you definitely notice when they're playing with the age rating and with this, they've gone with it. And I found it strange that they used Wonder Woman to do it. But I thought, fair enough. The collateral damage, I didn't think that Wonder Woman would go for the collateral damage front. She basically blows out that entire wall onto whatever is down below. There are definitely people hitting by chunks of rock. No one is clear by the end of it. There's no warning given. So she's definitely caused collateral damage. There's definitely injuries at the end of that. I got to disagree with you a little bit, Aaron, on the power levels with Wonder Woman. Every Wonder Woman film, and even sometimes scene to scene within a Wonder Woman film or a film featuring Wonder Woman, I can't keep track of what Wonder Woman can actually do. So in this first scene, in this introduction scene, she is able to manoeuvre faster than bullets coming out of an automatic machine gun. (laughs) Right? She is deflecting each of those individual bullets, bam, 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 while watching a clock tick down for 14 seconds for the bomb. Right? That's how long she's got. She blasts through the door, knocking the guys off the feet, and then deflects bullets and all sorts within 14 seconds and gets the case up into the air. That super speed is then absent for the rest of the film. Except from when Aquaman's about to get crushed. Oh, apart from Aquaman getting crushed. Sorry, did I forget that one? Okay, Aquaman gets saved by Wonder Woman then for the rest. But it just seems to vanish. She could do this, and now we're conveniently forgetting about that because we've now got the Flash who does the speedster stuff. Let's not get messed up with that. But it kind of disappears. You're probably right, actually. See the first scene that she appears in? I, for all my sins, thought her entrance scene was really cool. And I don't like to say that because it somehow seems contrary to my personality (laughs) to admit that I can be impressed by things. But it was pretty amazing (laughs) to see that. But maybe then it's, we need her to look cool so she gets extra powers because of it, which, of course, Hmm. you've now convinced me to hate. So, yeah, I'm totally against it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is the same scene that introduces her in the other version. This one's just longer and more brutal. Yeah, it's more drawn out. I think it's meant to be the old Bailey that they're in. When I watched the first time, I thought it was a bank, but there's people with the wigs on, and she's on the justice statue at the beginning, so I think it's a court. It looks kind of like a bank to me, but anyway. And then the whole thing about her ripping the face off the building as a extreme Mm. final move doesn't really fit with what they try to tell you about her when you've got the, what did you do this weekend, Diana? She's trying to hide. So you would expect her to be the kind of hero where people run in afterwards and wonder what the hell's going on, what the hell happened in here. And then, I don't know, there's this tacit agreement that the people just don't tell the authorities what they saw and what saved them. I don't know. But it just seems to run counter to the fact that she 
is trying to hide. Yeah, but what you've got to realise is in one scene her hair's up and in the other scene her hair's down. Therefore, you can't <laughs> tell it's the same woman. You have to get that. Yeah, it's true. I don't mind the fact that she's now maybe operating in public as opposed to what she was supposed to be. You know, in the Batman v Superman, she's meant to be in hiding. She's not really been out and about saving people. And then by this film, she's supposed to have decided, oh, actually, enough of the hiding. I'm actually going to help people out. And that's what this sort of intro scene does, is it goes, oh, she is actually using her powers and helping people again. She's went back to the fore. Let's ignore the fact that we've now had Wonder Woman 1984, which says that actually she was helping people before. And inspired the entire world. Yes. As well. Let's not forget that. She didn't just take time off after World War II. She then came back in the 80s. And she was already doing stuff before that film as well. That wasn't another sudden inspiration to help people. She was already helping folk at the beginning because she did The Rescue in the Shopping Centre. But that's a different film for another podcast. What happens in the 80s stays in the 80s. That's just the rule. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it should. Of course, it hadn't happened yet by the time this film was made. So, again, the trajectory of the... Wonder Woman film franchise might have been very different had this actually came out as mm. it did. Uh, definitely. We know that there were adjustments made to everything after this, so I'm, I'm not going to base it on that. I just get very confused about Wonder Woman's power levels. Does she have all these powers? Does she not? Can she fly? I keep getting confused as to whether she can actually fly or not. That, that <laughs> I, I've still not figured out. But sometimes it's just she can jump very, very far, and then other times they're like, nope, she can fly now. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And they're like, no, she can't fly again. Oh, right, okay. I get lost. I'm easily confused. I have the advantage over you there, actually. I've not seen Wonder Woman 1984, so I've not seen the natural power creep that occurs in all films. I wouldn't even mind if it was like a gradual power creep. It just changes within a single film. (laughs) So I sit and I go, okay, I know she can't be beat at this point. Oh no, she can beat them at this point. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Even the sword confuses me at the end because it's like, if you had the ability to use that sword to lop his head off earlier, why now? (laughs) It's because he hadn't been softened up by Superman before. Yeah, but if that weakness was there in the armour at the beginning, at the head, and they had them held down and everything, why did the sword not... Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing I was getting at with the Wonder Woman-Bruce Wayne dynamic that existed in the other cut... Well, there's an arc for Wonder Woman in that film that doesn't exist here. The arc in that film is her deciding what she's going to be as a hero... Is she going to be an inspiration to the world? Bruce Wayne specifically mentions in that film, you could be like Superman. You could be inspiring people. You could be showing people a better way to be, all that stuff. So she agonises over that over the course of the film. And her decision is kind of forced in the way that she begins to realise how mortal Bruce Wayne is, how vulnerable he is, how he can't keep doing this forever. Weirdly, Joss Whedon supports something that Zack Snyder introduced in Batman v Superman as in in that film Bruce Wayne was compensating for the fact that he was getting too old for this Mm. by brutally killing criminals because he was slowing down the only way he could keep himself safe and alive is by committing murder which is something that he presumably didn't do before we don't really know they don't tell us but you would assume that there was some point where his code was I'm not lethal and then that changed once he got a bit too old and a bit too slow so In the theatrical cut, you get that whole scene where Bruce Wayne is injured and Wonder Woman is standing there and thinking, yeah, I'm going to probably have to step up at some point. This guy is not going to come back one day. And even at the end, in that version, he 
goes off on his own, not expecting to come back, which again doesn't exist here. And I think that's a Snyder problem because Snyder wants to portray all of these characters as these kind of mythical, untouchable, invincible heroes, mm. including Batman, even though he's human. And he's the one character that you can allow to be mortal and you can have that situation where there will be a replacement for him at some point. There will be a point where he can't do this anymore and has to either step back or he'll just die. And I think that in the Joss Whedon version, he really was onto something there by using those two characters to explore that, whereas it just doesn't exist here. The thing of it is, though, that sort of stuff for me is the sort of thing that I want to watch. This more realistic world with these problems that we can relate to, I think are something that we haven't seen a lot on any of the TV shows or films, well, from Marvel and DC in great detail. Or if we do see it, it's the plot point of a standalone episode or arc that then quickly gets moved on because it was just there for that convenience of that particular plot. Whereas I'd like to see it across the world. Everybody has to face this. This whole idea that I keep coming back to in everything we talk about, where Superman has to go and speak to his mum because he needs actual wisdom. He's facing a world that he can't just punch through. And he really needs this wisdom from an older age, people who have been through these problems. I would like to see that everywhere. And to me, that that you've just described with Batman and Wonder Woman is part of that universe, which is something that I thought, even though I would desperately want it all the time, I thought they had specifically chosen to leave behind it's easier, of course, with Wonder Woman and Aquaman because they are not human. But nonetheless, in terms of the whole world, they were going for this slightly brighter, slightly more positive. They were leaving this real world horror, not horror, but these real world threats. They were leaving them behind. So even though it is interesting, even though I would want to see loads more of it, isn't that a necessary casualty of this movement towards a lighter filmmaking that the larger portion of the audience wants to see. Well, the problem with the other cut is it can't cover it in enough detail because you're already patching it into something that exists. Mm. So it would have really had to be a part of the framework of this film from day one, which it wasn't, yeah. because even though Batman's human, he is still this invincible creature, really, that never gets injured, that never has any issues, that's able to deal with threats that come his way, because that's the way Zack Snyder likes to characterise these people. They are larger than life. They're these mythical beings. They're a pantheon. They aren't human, even the one that is human. But isn't that what people want to see? I mean, I'm not arguing against what you're saying, because I want to see this. I would like to see all of them have these various problems and threats and things that they have to deal with that they cannot use their superpowers to overcome. I want to see that. But what I'm thinking is, given what the audience has requested, given that the audience wants to see mythical beings that stand above us to protect us, didn't that have to go? I don't want it to go, but didn't it have to go? Because the audience doesn't want to see a film that has that into its basic framework. In general, they don't want to see that. There's no reason you can't have both, though, because you can still have Batman be this ludicrously competent force in a 
battle situation and as he is and even has that line in this version I can't remember if it's in the other version I don't think so but Cyborg says to him I didn't think you were real and he says I'm real and it's useful it's that idea of I am this larger than life thing I mean the the whole Batman situation is that he's a symbol yeah, yeah. an incorruptible symbol an undefeatable symbol the whole idea is you can't destroy an idea and Batman's an idea and the Christopher Nolan films cover that in excruciating detail but here, not so much. It's just you're bringing that in with you, I suppose. But there's no reason you can't have both. I mean, the whole point is we do get the moments in the Batcave or wherever where these characters do open up and talk about different things. So I think that arc could have still existed and it would have been stronger because it gives Wonder Woman something to work towards rather than just being, I'm a woman with a sword. I'm going to cut this guy's head off and I'm not going to really develop in any way. I don't think Bruce Wayne develops very much here. He has changed a lot since Batman v Superman he has that bit where he says faith Alfred I have faith and that suggests that he has changed but in the film itself he doesn't change so there's none of that preparing for a world without him in there which I found to be really interesting in the the other Justice League film yeah sure I remember in the last film a lot of the Batman's getting too old for this being more played for laughs yeah, something's definitely bleeding. Oh, yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, something's are oh, can't do that. Or everyone else sort of flying and scooting off and him having a light meander behind them. <laughs> I remember it being a bit more played as that rather than anything else. That's a consequence of the patchwork of the other film, though. Yeah, it's bits of the other story. And there's a limit to what Batman can do. And I like that these films embrace that fact that there is a limit to Batman because the argument that you always get is, no, Batman can handle anything. It's like, no, Batman can't. (laughs) Batman is going to get beaten up. With enough prep time, he can handle anything. (laughs) Yeah, with enough prep time. And he's got plans within plans to deal with these things. He's prepared himself for any sort of threat. His preparing himself for this threat is assembling a Justice League. That is him preparing for this threat. It's not him getting some massive mech suit on or anything like that. It's simply he has managed to assemble a team that's going to take out someone. Well, the other film does that whole prep thing better as well. The whole resurrection of Superman thing. It's his idea to bring Lois... In this version, she's just there. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to raise that later on in the Superman bit, but since you've brought it up, I'll bring it in now. I hated the fact that they didn't bring Lois in on this. Because they even keep in the line that I had assumed was from the other film, which is when Barry came to me in the future. He said, Lois is the key. And she is. But hang on, you didn't tell her what you were doing. She just happened to be out with coffee that night. You didn't consult her. You took her husband's body (laughs) and resurrected him from the dead. And you didn't think maybe to tell her we might be doing this tonight. Just giving you a heads up. There's a big threat in the world and we think there's a way to bring him back. And it would be really good if you were maybe there just in case. Because the last time he saw me, he was a little bit peeved with what I'd done. But no, in this one, it's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just go out for my morning coffee. Oh, my God, they've brought my husband back from the dead. What? <laughs> really? Just dumb luck, really, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I just happened to be walking by. do 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 Oh, my God, there he is. <laughs> that, to me, fits into the epilogue problem. It feels like they purposely chose to get rid of the lowest warning from here, where it would have real legitimate use and where you would actually be able to appreciate one of Batman's main skills, his intelligence. 
yes, he cannot stand toe-to-toe with any of these people. The reason he can actually play in their league, though, literally in their league, if you'll pardon the pun, is because he is that smart. I'm not saying he should be able to take them all, but there is a reason he is in the Justice League when everybody else is massively powerful creature from beyond. And that's because he is smart enough to think, how can I solve this problem? So if you're saying, as the director right, the lowest warning is not needed here, then it has to be purposeful because you are choosing to take that warning and put it in your next film, which do you actually know you're even going to get? And if so, why are you taking that amazing thing that you could have done, sure, Batman's intelligence, by bringing Lois along and ditching it into an epilogue that may not even have any use? So I think it was all done purposefully, but is this trying to get leverage to get another film? Is that the point behind that purposeful choice? I don't know. I don't know either. I just know that Joss Whedon understood a way to utilise Batman and a way to utilise Lois Lane in the context of a resurrected Superman in a way that made perfect sense. Bruce Wayne is worried that the resurrected Superman might try and kill them. One way to dissuade him from doing that is by bringing in Lois Lane. That makes ultimate sense. And... Why both versions don't do it is beyond me. It's interesting because I think a lot of people have just assumed, oh yeah, the other version is without merit compared to this one. But I think there is a few things that it does better. And it makes sense because we won't get into Joss Whedon's evisceration in the media at the moment. Deservedly so, it has to be said. But there's no denying that he's a very talented writer. He's very good at picking little bits with characters that just work and just move things forward. And he managed to inject a couple of things that I much prefer over this version. In his sort of patchwork version, he manages to put in a few character beats that just enhance different things in, in different ways, and that Lois Lane utilisation is one of them. Since we're talking about Lois Lane, one of the cuts that he did for something that was in Snyder's original version was taking the Martian Manhunter sure. stuff out of the scene with Lois and Martha. That is a really powerful, really great character scene and for some reason they went no let's make it be martian manhunter (laughs) because no one will see that as a twist coming and you don't because you're like well this is a really meaningful character thing between two people grieving Mm -hmm. for the same man and then they turn around and go oh no actually it was someone pretending the whole time and you go (laughs) oh right okay i guess has martha ever been alive is it martha that we're seeing at the end (laughs) Every time I see Martha, I was there ever a Martha? Where's the real Martha? Is she dead? What's happened? So instead of like a, a kind of moving moment between two people who are grieving and moving on, you get this weird scene where you're like, what's his reason for doing that? Why is he visiting them at this point? It was a very odd decision, and I think it was way better in the Justice League version. It's a completely different scene. It takes place in the Daily Planet, for example. In the other version, Lois isn't off work forever. She's at work doing little less important things while she's trying to get her life back together and things. In this version, she's just at home and talking to Martha Manhunter, who weirdly... I'm not the first one to coin it. It's been coined way before this. But yeah, it's, it's such a weird reveal because she slash he, whatever, walks out of the apartment and then changes to Martian Manhunter. It's one of those weird audience-only reveals. There's no reason he would yeah. unshapeshift other than just to show us. And then he changes to the general guy or whatever he is. 
and then leaves. No one notices, but we are missing a scene where Lois goes to Martha. I mean, that talk the other day, by the way, just what I needed. I'm going back to work on Monday. Thanks very much for just coming and giving me some perspective. And then Martha, what the hell are you talking about? It's definitely a big shame to have to steal from one character to give to another. That's a personality crime, if you will. But even worse than that is what it employs for Martian Manhunter when he brings it in. The possibility of the world being completely erased by some hideously powerful magical sigil is not enough for Martian Manhunter to get out of bed and think it's going to be a bad day. (laughs) So you've got to make it even worse than that for him to consider his input is needed. But at least he's decided the next threat, what the earth that's going to be, I've no idea, but the next threat he'll get involved in. But it's so weird because he has like a military service. So he is involved in quite a big way. He's quite senior in the military. So you're not exactly staying away, pal. You're involved, whether you want to admit that you are or not. He doesn't get out of bed for the planet being destroyed and 7 billion people being wiped out. He'll only get out of bed if you're going to wipe out the entire solar system. It's obviously what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's such a weird inclusion. And... Reportedly, I don't know how true this is, but reportedly they wanted to do the reveal of him being Martian Manhunter during Batman v Superman, but didn't because Supergirl scooped them. Mm. They had a military guy who turned out to be Martian Manhunter at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> roughly at the same time, and the episode just happened to air. And at that point, the two arms of Warner Brothers weren't talking to each other, mm. so no one knew that they were planning the reveal. So they just cut it apparently after Supergirl did it. Not that it would make any difference. I mean, who's really going to care? Other than, yeah, that also happened in Supergirl. Isn't it a bit of a throwaway addition anyway, though? Because seeing some of the stuff online about it, the reveal wasn't supposed to be Martian Manhunter. Sorry, not revealed. The new character wasn't supposed to be Martian Manhunter in the original plan. It was supposed to be Green Lantern coming down. But the production teams told them, you cannot have Green Lantern. We've got this. You mean at the end? Yeah, they had to put him in at the end as the, the character that's going to come down from above. Wasn't going to be Martian Manhunter. So he, he even got stashed in somebody else's. Not only did he steal somebody else's thunder, he even had to jump in and steal somebody else's slot. He is the very epitome <laughs> of just a quick who's available. I'm here. Look at me. It's just a bit horrible for him as well, let alone consequences of what it means for Martha and the world. For some reason, he really needs Lois Lane back on task. He really needs her reporting. So he also must be a supervillain who can see through time and know (laughs) that he has to manipulate Martha and Lois into this particular relationship because of what it means in 40 years' time for somebody's grandchild. That must be the game he's playing. I mean, he's got a lot of details about the farm being sold and everything like that as well. He's researched it. No, he's done his research before having his conversation. Oh, yeah. He found out where Martha's living and, yeah. Maybe he has been Martha this whole time. Must be. Which really alters your perception of Man of Steel. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to kill this small-town woman, assume her form, and raise this Kryptonian child. But then I'm not going to get involved in the world other than going very high up in a military organisation. Another supervillain. Yep, there's two of them. Very confusing. A lot of multitasking, being a military general and a mum at the same time. That's tough. Yeah. I mean, fair, fair play to Martian Manhunter. How does he do it? 
Maybe it was Jonathan Kent as well. Nah, you see Martha and Jonathan in the same scene. That doesn't make any sense. But yeah, who knows how many other people's mothers he is? Specifically mothers. <laughs> That's what he Just to do. Specialises in that. <laughs> we're not here to judge. Even though that's what we're doing. <laughs> okay, let's move on to Cyborg. Victor Stone, he is, as you alluded to earlier, Chris, quite significantly beefed up in this film. He is arguably the point of view character in a lot of ways because he's connected to the story. He's going through a lot. He's the one that's changing more where everyone else is a bit more secure in who or what they are. Apart from Barry, but we'll get to that. And... Yeah, I really like the extra work they did with him here. I think framing him as this innately decent person who has an air of tragedy to him, who resents what's happened to him, who isn't in control of what's happening to him, who doesn't understand what's happening to him. I thought that really worked in the whole loss of his humanity thing and getting extra in his backstory. He was really underserved in the other version. And I think it's very, very good how they, they threw him into this plot and made it revolve around him in a lot of ways. Definitely. His story added a lot more heart to it than previously, because in the previous version, he was just sort of a very gloomy character who would come up with exposition or be a MacGuffin finder. I've tapped into the satellite and I've found a thing and here's where we're going to go next. There you go. Oh, you need this thing fixed? Oh, there we go. I've done it. It's fixed. Da-da. Although he does that in this film too. He does that, but it isn't his sole purpose in the film. You know what I mean? He does all those things, but it's not like that's the only time you see him on screen is when he's fixing something or tracking a widget for you. You get a lot more. The bit of backstory with his mum, seeing the accident, seeing a lot more of his interaction with his dad. The whole speech that you get at the end about him being his dad twice, bringing Mm -hmm. him back into the world twice, is a great piece. And I like seeing a lot more of uh, Joe Morton as well, whose name I keep forgetting, so I've had to write it down in front of me. I'm used to seeing him a lot in Eureka, but he seems to spend a lot of his time playing these troubled scientists. It seems to be his bag. Terminator 2. Yeah. He's Dyson in Terminator 2. Yeah, he's very good at it. He seems to be a go-to guy for we need a scientist. I think he's in Smallville as a scientist as well, so it isn't even his first time into the DC verse. I think there was some really powerful stuff in there. Even getting a little bit of him getting used to his powers and the way they visualised him talking to the internet or travelling through the internet, looking at the stock market, manipulating the bank. The two bulls fighting, that's weird though. That was that was weird. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, the two well that's because it's meant to be the markets, isn't it? The market is the have they not got the bull statue outside Wall Street? Yeah. I'm trying to remember where that is. But yeah. It's the finance representation, the bear market and the mm. bull market, I'm sure they were fighting. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so you get those visualizations and then sort of walking into the bank and the stacks of money and manipulating the stacks of money and him doing his research into why this person is deserving of getting their bank account bumped up. And even little bits of joy when he flies for the first time. You get little bits of that, which you never got in the first film. It was just doom and gloom throughout. Whereas this, you kind of get a little bit more in there. Yeah, although that scene where he was walking through the internet and helping that woman with her financial issues and things, I think it was good, and I really liked the way that he help that woman that needed help. Although there's the whole logistics of, let's hope she doesn't contact her bank to say thank you for this because they're going to trace this back to something. I don't know. But the whole speech kind of annoyed me because it does factor into that whole, everything's powerful. Everything's got to be more powerful. Because his dad makes a point of saying, you're more powerful than any other being on earth. You could launch nukes with a thought. You can do all this. And that's why I'm so proud of you because you're so powerful now. And I think that's 
gets in the way of the personal touch of his change, of what he's becoming, of what he's afraid of becoming. It's just that, look how powerful you are now, and that's good. Again, mm. it's a Snyder thing. He's very into how powerful things are. Yeah, and it is something, I mean, I mention it on other shows as well. I think I mentioned about the DC shows, and I'm sure I've mentioned it in other films, is that as you make your heroes stronger, your villains need to be stronger. And it means that in the next film, in order for the villain to be a threat, the villain needs to be even stronger, but the villain still needs to be defeated on the end, which then makes your hero even stronger. And there is a certain point with this where I go, how strong is Aquaman supposed to be? How invincible is Aquaman supposed to be? Because he smashes through an entire building. Very similar with Cyborg. I'm like, well, what's the limits of his power? What's the limits of what he can find and who he can find? Apparently none. How fast can he hack? What can he get to? What can't he get to? Is it untraceable? Like you say, my inner tech angle goes, well, that would be found out eventually. Someone would go, (laughs) well, there's a massive irregularity here where it appears that £100,000 appeared from nowhere in our database. What happened? It's a problem with so many films, the power creep and the levels of power that you need. Because if you make invincible villains, then you need to have your invincible superhero to beat them at the end. And I'm sure that is something that we'll come round to later. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about Cyborg is I do think they were trying to draw parallels between him and Superman, specifically in Man of Steel. Because you have that whole, he's flying and he's quite excited about it. He's learning about his powers. He's figuring out his place in the world. That arc is there. And if you extrapolate it, even in Batman v Superman, you've got the entire world is debating whether Superman should be allowed to exist because of what he can do. Well, what if the people find out this guy can literally walk into any digital domain you can think of and you can't stop him? That level of power is arguably scarier than what Superman can do because he could bring the world to its knees with a thought, literally, just by changing a record somewhere. He could completely disrupt the flow of modern society as we know it. So it's pretty clear that people don't know Cyborg exists in the world at that point, but are we ever going to get that addressed? Probably not. But there is that parallel that they could keep drawing there as well. But I think certainly initially they focus too much on what he can do and how significant that is in itself. I really like the character work. I really like the loss of his humanity, not knowing who he is, resenting his dad for saving his life. You get that whole bit where his mother's standing up for him because he changed a girl's grades at school and she justifies it by, well, what are you doing to help her? No, no, he still frauded the system. That's still what he did. You can't just moralise it and, and get away from that. But I think it's confused in the way that Cyborg is handled because there's a very personal story there, but there's also a, you're the most powerful being on Earth story. Mm. The two don't connect for me. One of the key points for me was it was the only origin story that I was pleased to see any of. I'm not going to challenge what you've said about it because I think there are points in it that weren't necessarily perfect. It was good to see parts of it, but not all of it. But it shows that this is the reason why this film has been extended in part, because DC decided they wanted to go straight to Justice League without building the Justice League characters up before it. And how can you possibly solve that problem? And the answer is you can't. You can't do what Marvel has done by just going straight to it. You've got to purposely choose not to, or you've got to put in the work. And either route is possible, but they went, no. No, we want the shortcut. There's money to be made. Go straight in, please. And 
what you've got here with the Snyder Cut is him trying to fill in the gap. He's trying to give you the Justice League film, but add in the origin stories that should have come before it and still make it a palatable watch. And to a certain degree, I think he does succeed with Cyborg because he brings Cyborg's origin story into the main plot of Justice League through the mother boxes. And so it does work. But then you throw in Barry's quote origin story, because it's not really his origin story, but it sort of counts as that because it's his introduction and they have to show him in the supermarket and they have to show his weak cave and they, for some reason, have to show him meeting Iris and they have to tell you all about his dad. So it's not his origin story, but it effectively is taking that space. It is giving you your full introduction. They try and give you that with Aquaman as well. And with those, it seems unwelcome. I don't want to see all this stuff from Barry. It's in the way. I don't want all this picture of Aquaman getting splashed by the waves and going under and speaking to someone and coming back. It's in the way. So the cyborg stuff is part of that problem for me. The origin stories were a mixed bag in this film. Cyborgs was the best and the most welcome, but some of the parts that you've then gone on to discuss, I will say, show that it was still difficult and an insurmountable problem, I think, to put the origin stories in this film, because probably everything you brought up as an issue would have been quite easily solved in its own two-hour film. And they would have been able to be in a much clearer, much more coherent, pick up these personal beats without skipping over the consequences for the planet. But that was not possible. So I'm, I'm stuck with saying, what do I think about this? What do I like about it? Knowing full well that it couldn't possibly be what would have been good by giving it its own film, as is true for all of them. And, and that's a shame, but it's almost like this was the best cyborg origin story we were going to have. So I feel like I'm going to say I was okay with it because to do anything else would have meant an eight hour film, which I'm not. <laughs> <a poor. laughs> I think in an ideal world in my head, now that I've seen how they did the cyborg origin story in this film, and like you say, Aaron, he fits perfectly into this plot because his origin is the mother box. So he fits perfectly into this. In my ideal world, you'd have had a Flash film and an Aquaman film before this came oh, out. Yeah. Introduce Cyborg in this, that's fine, because he makes sense to introduce in this. Yeah. But you could have had your Aquaman and your Flash movie or something to introduce them before this. I know we can't go back and change the timeline, not yet, anyway. <laughs> but if you could, I really think those characters having an introduction film before this would have been better. And then the only character that you would have needed to do more origin of, really, would have been Cyborg. And I think it would have flowed a lot better at that point. You wouldn't have had as many of these sort of diversions at the beginning, especially when you have a condensed timeline. Yeah, and every conceivable thing about Cyborg is done better in this version of the film. Except one that I picked up on. In the other cut, they make a point of connecting Cyborg and the Flash in a way that's actually quite interesting. And it comes up when they're digging the grave. In this version, they just talk about how hot Wonder Woman is from Barry's perspective. And it doesn't tell you anything about the characters other than Barry finds Wonder Woman attractive. And yeah, who doesn't, to be fair? But do we need to know that? And 
I think at some point, maybe in that scene, he mentions that Superman was his hero. But they don't know anything about it, so it doesn't mean anything. But in that scene in the other version, they talk about where they came from and why they're part of this. And Barry makes that one line that really sums it up. Oh, so we're the accidents. Everyone else is born to it, have trained for it, whatever. But we're the accidents. We didn't ask for this. This has happened to us. And that was a really good way of connecting them. And it made their friendship feel a bit more lived in. They don't have a friendship in this film, which makes their fist bump at the end really pointless because it doesn't build to it in any way. But I like that connection they made between the two of them in the other version. That being said, I think Cyborg has done really well here and, and his core relationships are really with his family and he has to deal with watching his father die in front of him and the revenge that he wants to achieve after that. So it's all great stuff and I think framing the story through him works really well. It works much better than it does in the other film where the story's just happening and you don't know who's really invested in it other than the fact that they kind of want to survive it. No, definitely. And the scene where his dad sacrifices himself, very emotional, but also a welcome addition, (laughs) (laughs) where the mother box is not just completely forgot, left in a car park and snatched (laughs) away by the enemy. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Justice League still totally leave it there to get (laughs) snatched up by anyone, even a scientist with a lab coat. But at least this time, someone does manoeuvre the box. So well done him. Yeah, and then uses that thing about, oh yeah, I'll superheat it so that you can track it later. That's the sacrifice he makes. Yeah, the heat laser thing. I was like, why, why are we getting a heat laser? What's going on with the heat laser? Why is this heat laser? Ah, that's why we're getting all this exposition yeah. about a heat laser. Cool. <laughs> yeah, because apparently you can't just track it on your own. Why did he go in the box with the heat laser? Other than because I'm he needed sure. to die. I mean, I understand that. That guy's days were numbered. He had to die because Victor. I totally understand that, but I also hate the plot force and will always rail against it but that said then why did he go in couldn't he have just activated it from outside where all the computers were but he activates it and then goes in with it he can't have been looking for protection from steppenwolf because he knew what was going to happen it's also just a glass box he's just going to bust through well that i just yeah. Even thinking yeah So I didn't follow that. And I thought I must have missed something, but I'm still not sure. No, I think it's one of those things where the moment is powerful enough that you sort of sweep it aside. But yeah, you're right. There's no reason for him to be in there other than the fact that he has to die because Cyborg needs something to chew over in the (laughs) quiet moment they have before they go into the fight. Yeah. Yeah, fair point. I don't think there's a lot more we can say about the Flash that we haven't already said relative to that. I do like that he's eager and he's the audience perspective in the way that oh, that's the bat signal. We have to go to that now. That's what that means. And Bruce is like, yeah, 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 that's what it means. Calm down. And he has a bit more of a normal perspective than others in a Mm. lot of ways, as in he's not part of this world. He's an accident and he's never really been involved in wide-scale heroics before. So that's an interesting perspective. It's also in the other film. I don't think it's any better or worse here. I think it's about the same. Barry's about the same here, other than the fact that he likes to touch Iris's face when she doesn't know that he's there. <laughs> Which is weird. I mean, I said earlier on, I find that odd. Hmm. I thought he was still good in this one. They still did the jokes. I thought a lot of the jokes, like the stack hole gag and things like that, would have been gone in this version, but it turned out that was part of... There's a lot that people attributed to Whedon yeah. that isn't attributed to Whedon, and I really like that. The Amazonian battle bikini thing in that early sequence... Not a Whedon edition, as everybody assumed. I did like that. Oh, right, okay. So this was always here. Okay, good to know. 
you can take back all your criticisms then. <laughs> yeah. That whole little sequence as they come out of the flash cave, for want of a better term, is you get the snack hole line and you get, what's your superpower? I'm rich, which is a fantastic line. But you don't get anything about brunch. Nothing you don't get brunch. the brunch stuff. The brunch stuff was a bit unnecessary, so we don't get any brunch. The line that I kind of missed was the stuff about not knowing how to help when they go down the tunnels. And it's like, I don't know how I can help during this. And I think the line originally was something like, save one person at a time. Then you'll Focus on one do. person, yeah. save one person, and then you'll know. And you don't get that in this one, which I think was a little omission. I, I quite like the fact that he didn't know how to help on this sort of grand scale. Because he's so used to doing little things like stealing hot dogs while rescuing people from cars <laughs> yeah. that he wasn't sure how to help in that situation. And then he, he sort of picks it up. And I think I would have preferred a little bit more of that. But otherwise, I think he was well served in it. That's another great little Joss Whedon beat where he managed to enhance character in seconds because it shows you Batman's leadership skills because he is able to tell Barry what to do and how to be useful. And it establishes that Barry is very new at this and doesn't know what he's doing. And he's terrified of this situation where he's fighting aliens. Well, you don't get that fear in this one at all. He just kind of gets on with it. And again, that's better in the other version where he's terrified of the situation. And he looks to Batman for advice and Batman just says, save one person and then you'll know. And then he runs in, brings one person out and he's like, oh, I get it. And then he just keeps doing it. And that's a great little character moment. Whereas here he's just... Again, very powerful. The two main big things he does in this film are predicated on how powerful and how fast he is. Which, yeah, The Flash, he's a hero who solves all his problems by running very fast. That we know from seven seasons of television, that's what he does. <laughs> if there's a problem, he's going to run and it'll solve itself in some way. So that's fine, but there was the two moments where, well, accidental time travel in one moment and deliberate time travel in another moment. But again, it's just about how fast he is. That's his contribution, isn't it? Yeah, it's very true. The bit in the final battle where he's got to run really fast so he can lightning the mother boxes as Cyborg touches them frustrated me <laughs> in this edit. There was a lot about that final sequence that I actually liked and preferred over what they did in the other version. However, the fact that you've got Barry running in circles going, is anyone listening? I'm ready to go now. Do you want to go now? I'm ready, I can't hold it for much longer. And he basically says, I can't hold it much longer a further, what felt like about 120 <laughs> times. And then when it's finally the moment to do it, that's when he gets taken out. After spending ages going, hello, hello, I'm ready to go now. Anyone else? Anyone waiting to go? The parademon remembering his space invaders. Instead of shooting where he is, he's going to shoot where he's going to be. Yeah, exactly. That sort of annoyed me because it was the one, two, and then... Yeah, anyway. There was far too long of I can't take it any longer, and then he's yeah. still going. <laughs> I'll just bring back one point from before. I'm still wondering if the removal of the things that you've just spoken about and the focus on the power levels. I still wonder if that's been done purposely because of audience reactions to previous films. And somebody's interpreted that as they want the superheroes to be super. I don't know that that's been done on purpose, but I still think that's a likely explanation, a reasonable explanation to say why these human elements have been removed. I can only say I also preferred the human elements to be in there but if we are heading towards this lighter universe where the people are larger than life, 
purposefully, then this might be what somebody thought was a necessary casualty, but we've already discussed that. On to Aquaman. I think he's just unpleasant in this version. He's just bitter. His background is bitterness. He's always the curmudgeonly one when they're in the group chats. He's just unpleasant. I didn't like him much at all in this. There's nothing really to say about him either. He's just strong. And then he weirdly has his moment of glee at the end where he's saying my man and things like he does in the other version where he's getting thrown around by Cyborg. There's very little to him, I find. And it's fairly off-putting. I kind of agree with you. I don't find him that engaging a character in this version. I had problems with him in the last version as well. He's very down all the time. He doesn't do that much when you're in the group chat sequences and the exposition sequences. He just does his bit to throw a bit of doubt over Cyborg, really. And this one going, well, why should we trust you? It's like, well, he just helped you out and he had a hold of a mother box already. That's why you should trust him. He already had the thing. He already had a MacGuffin. If you wanted to steal a MacGuffin, <laughs> he's already got it. That's why you should trust him. He's not given it to the enemy already. There wasn't that much in the bits of origin story slash introduction, really, rather than origin that you get. Doesn't really add that much more. If anything, it actually takes some stuff away that you've got from the last one. You just get a lot more of them rescuing a guy and then being like, really, well, don't mess around with boats in a storm and the next time I'm really grumpy, now I'm going to steal this whiskey and go into the sea again. (laughs) And then pollute the ocean like I did last time by throwing the ball into the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, he's a gloomy character and I really like Jason Momoa. He's a man mountain and he's better in his own film and I think that's just a bit of the direction that they gave for this one. And I do want to see more Aquaman stuff. I kind of enjoyed The last one was like the most movie movie ever made. (laughs) (laughs) They threw everything at it. But in this, it just kind of doesn't match up, really. I know that they changed it on the basis of this, really. So it says it all, really. I think Aquaman is always going to suffer from the fact that he is Aquaman. As in, (laughs) you can't really do anything with his powers unless you bring in creatures from the sea or tidal waves. And they do manage to get the scene underneath Gotham Harbour, I think, underneath some sort of big water, and he stops the tidal wave going in. Where he can hold back sewage. And so they've managed to make his abilities useful in that one way. And to be fair, that worked for me. That was a reasonably good use of his powers. But if you are going to include such a diverse cast of abilities and talents in your Justice League, then you are really going to struggle to find something that they can all do. You've already said, well, how can we make the Flash's powers useful? He's going to have to run around and throw lightning and so on. We forced that in. So that bit that Chris didn't like, it was forced in because the Flash has got the Flash's powers and he, he can't play the same game that everybody else can play so you need to contrive a circumstance whereby what he can do can work but unless you're going to move the entire thing underwater you're not going to be able to contrive a way of putting in aquaman's powers and the usual way of dealing with these things is to go into the character instead and they did that with Wonder Woman, they connected the main plot line of some of the mother boxes to the Atlanteans. Uh, not the Atlanteans, good grief, to the Amazons. So she is linked to the plot, 
and can be a mouthpiece for the plot, which even if you don't like it because you found it too much exposition, at least it gives her a purpose. She's more than just a sword and shield because she has a connection to the back plot and has a reason to be there and talk and give you the info. But they didn't use Aquaman to tell you the Atlantean side of the story because, of course, he's not in Atlantis just now. He can go in and tell you about the fight he had in Atlantis, but he's not part of the politics and they don't use it at all. So if what you're saying is true, that Snyder has focused himself entirely on making them characters powerful and using their powers, then he has chosen to remove the only other way Aquaman could get involved by being royalty, by being connected to the history, by giving access to all these secondary characters. So it's an active choice. And it seems like the active choice screwed Aquaman right from the start. And I think it's the same with Flash. I think both of them get screwed. The scenes that they're in have to be contrived towards them. And it sometimes works or it sometimes doesn't. I mean, you've even said that you reckon that that goes even further into Wonder Woman that they have managed to get her a connection, but you found it boring because she's just a mouthpiece for plot. And I would say, you're right, all three of them really struggle to find a purpose that their powers alone can fit. And I don't even know where you go from here, because if you're going to step it up a level even further, then Darkseid is going to have to flood the universe and have it all underwater. And, you know, the the earth is drowning. I've got this covered. It's me. It's my go. Because it's just not going to go anywhere else. So the only way I think you can rescue that, and let's go back to Aquaman, the only way you can rescue Aquaman, and as an example of the others, is to set this after his introductory film. Oh, dear. Mm. That's not possible. What a shame we can't go back and do that. So he was screwed right from the start. There was no way of bringing him in in such a way as he could work. I'm actually not convinced that it was a problem with this film. I think the problem came right early on before the film, and it's too late, too late to go back, unless they add something in. But then you can't really add something in because you know you've got to somehow preserve the Aquaman film, I guess. He wasn't (laughs) trying to create a new continuity, so he was locked into the problem. And no way out that I can think of, anyway. Yeah, and the other version doubles down on his personality. They try and make him as charismatic as possible. And there's that scene where he sits in the lasso and he just opens up about how he's feeling about the whole situation, (laughs) which is a great scene. Once again, it's a very quick character moment. You don't really get much of that here. As you say, Chris, he just is there to be the contrarian. I don't trust Cyborg. This guy's really young. You're dressing like a bat. And I'm going to tell everyone in this Icelandic town that you're really Batman and all that stuff. So that's really all he does. He just comes in to just object to stuff. When they're trying to resurrect Superman at the last minute, he's like, stop it. We can't do this. And even during the fights, it's not clear what he can do, really. He's just really strong, but he's not as strong as Wonder Woman. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, he's strong and kind of invincible, but not quite invincible. That's his power out of the water kind of thing, which is what they've got to do to make him, like Aaron's saying, you've got to struggle really hard because you've either got to set all your action sequences around about the water, which then hinders everyone else's ability, or you need some other purpose. So they've made him uber strong to make that work a little bit better. They're not going to go into the cheesy aspect of him asking the dolphins or the whales for help, are they? So (laughs) that's about as close as you're going to get. Yeah. Unfortunately. It's what it is, I suppose. Our final League member, the late edition, Superman. Superman Resurrected. 
I don't like what they do with Superman here. He is very much just a blunt instrument that's deployed. You do get a little bits of, I'm just back from the dead and that's a bit confusing and I'm going to hang around the farmhouse for a bit and then, but I need to find out why I've been brought back. So I'm going to fly off and help the Justice League because that's what I'm going to do. And that's really all there is to him. Why is he wearing a black suit? Don't know, just because he is. Especially when you see him walking (laughs) past the red and blue suit in the ship. Really bad interpretation of Superman here. He has no personality, really. And that's what everybody accuses the Henry Cavill version of being in the other films. He has no personality. He's very bland. He's very dull. Well, here he is bland and dull. And it's a shame. I'm a big Superman fan, as you probably all know. So poorly served here. He is just what he can do. That's all he is. But that's the same problem as the others then. A lot of them are reduced to that because there's no time. I guess it's more obvious with him, though, because of how little screen time he has. Maybe. I honestly wouldn't have put that under the Superman heading. I would have put that under the heading of many of them. It's a problem with a film that has six leads. How do you actually give them all space enough to shine? And what you normally do is extend your film out to the rather longer than usual two and a half hours. Well, (laughs) that's not possible because I've filled all my time with other things. There's only so much that this version can fix and there simply isn't time to do anything of it. If we'd have had all the origin films get rid of all of it, I would have even put, obviously, Cyborg out. I appreciate we've said that it does fit here, and, and I, I stand by that, but I still would have taken it out. And then you would have had a lot more time to do all of this character moments. And the Joss Whedon stuff that you said, to give them those characters, is the sort of thing that a team movie normally does use in order to differentiate its characters. It's proven to work. It's a good thing that he did do it. And it is a shame to lose it. But there's potentially no time even for that in this colossal version. So I understand what you're saying. But yeah, I really wouldn't put it under the Superman heading. I would have put it under the character general heading. The other version gives him a bit of personality as well. You have the bit where he shows up and he's like, oh, civilians, and then he leaves and then he's making fun of the Flash. That's so (laughs) awful. I hated that so much and I'm so glad it's gone. I'm not saying it's ideal because it's not, but it's the best you can sort of crowbar into something that already exists. Yeah. I think if Joss Whedon had written a script that Zack Snyder could direct, I think you would have something that's really special and you would have a really good version of Superman in there probably because, yeah. well, you wrote Captain America, essentially the same guy yeah. in terms of personality and values. So I think that, yeah, there's room for that. And his intro or his entrance when he appears in the fight in the other version I prefer it to this one. Although I do like this version where he just shows up and the axe hits him and it does nothing. And then he's like, not impressed. Mm -hmm. And then he just freezes it. It's good. And then it's quite exciting when the new Superman music is playing as he's just wailing on Steppenwolf and making a complete mockery of him. But the other version where I'm I'm a sucker for the John Williams theme, where he shows up and he's like, I'm a big fan of truth. I'm also a fan of justice. And it's the John Williams music. That's satisfying as well. And I think the other version leans into a version of Superman that I want to see more than this one, but I'm not really clear on what this version actually is in this film. I get a good sense of who he is in Man of Steel. Me and Isaac did a podcast about it. We did Batman v Superman. You get some sense of who he is in that film, even though it's not really about him. But here you get almost nothing. He's just a blank slate with powers. But this is just, again, going back to the fact that there are 
choices that were made early on that got rewritten when they weren't audience favored. And you can't afford to sit on the line with these choices because they're so fundamental. Specifically, are you making a gritty version of this universe or are you not? You, you have to make a choice because it affects the color palette. It affects every single part of the plot. It affects the character motivations because they all need to be either a bit more human or a bit more super and mythical. You can't dance around both and say, oh, we'll just try a bit of each and see how it turns out because it seems like a mess. So the loss of the gritty realism to me is a big loss. And we have seen the DC Universe has tried to move away from it and create a nicer, brighter universe in general. But this film is still maybe stuck slightly in the older, grittier setup. And you're trying to rewrite it into the new, brighter, shinier universe. And you can't. All you can do is paper over the bits because to actually change the foundation, you couldn't just do a few reshoots. You'd have to re-script and redo the whole thing. And this loss of character, I think, comes from that because you set up this grittier world where everybody has to make more awful human decisions. You take all that away and you don't put anything in its place because there's no time, because you can't redo all the previous films. When you would have built up these characters, when you start to create a foundation for them all, which then during a Justice League film, the foundation is set and all you have to do is riff off them because there's no time to do anything else. That's where these Joss Whedon little moments come in because you've only got little moments. So you need to riff off what the audience already knows and build upon it. But if you've chosen to wipe that foundation clean because you don't want that anymore, there's nothing to riff off. So I think it's just this lingering problem that even recutting the film, he couldn't go back through Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, rebuild their personalities, give you time to know who they are, and now riff off it. It's too late. I think Snyder's done a good job of, quote, sort of saving the film, but it really goes to prove that he saved the film a bit. But he, ha he hasn't really fixed all problems, waved a magic wand and made everything better because that's impossible. Again, to do that, he is going to need an eight to ten hour film where he can actually say, I'm going to write the scripts for all of these old films. I'm even going to rewrite Batman versus Superman and put that in here as well. Oh, 12 hour film, 14 hour. It's, got, <laughs> no, it's too late. It's gone. It's over. And maybe if they'd have put in some of these Joss Whedon moments, it would have given you something to say, I like those. But I still think you'd be missing the foundation personality that these things are riffing off. And I don't think anybody could have put that in. So I completely agree with you, but I think it's a casualty that was caused by a poison that long since went into the water and you just can't get it out. There's no solution. Picking up on a couple of things you said there. So, I mean, arguably this film is about as pure a version of the thing that Zack Snyder wanted to make as you're going to get. Because it's what he shot. It's what he wanted to make. I'm not saying there wasn't any reactionary stuff in there because there definitely was. Mm. That can be evidence as early as Batman v Superman. Where we're going to react to these things and make changes such as we're going to have several obvious lines about how there's no civilians in the area to get killed because Man of Steel drew a lot of complaints because we kept knocking buildings on people yeah. and we can't have civilians in danger anymore. There isn't any civilians in danger in this film, at the end anyway. 
Is that where the line civilians in danger literally comes from? Because one of the writers felt, oh, just stuck in his head. Civilians in danger, let's put it in. <laughs> Who knows? But I genuinely think that Snyder isn't interested in the things I'm talking about, in these little quirks of personality, these bits of character. He is only interested in Superman in as far as he is this powerful being, this godlike being. Mm. Man of Steel delves into his humanity and... That's a consequence of the writing, but there's an awful lot of saviour imagery and things like that in Man of Steel. I mean, there is in almost every Superman film, to be fair, but particularly there, he does double down on that. And you get bits of that here when he's in space and his arms are stretched out as if he's a cross while he's absorbing sun and whatever. So I don't think he's interested in that part of it, because if he was, it would be in there. And it just isn't in there. And obviously he's not going to add anything that Joss Whedon shot, because... That's not the film he wants to make. And yeah, okay, I support the fact that he makes his film the way he wants it, but I think he's doing a disservice to some of these characters by not making them characters. You might be right, to be honest. I think I'd need to see an interview with him to say which it is or not. I'm definitely convinced he's made purposeful choices. Yeah, that's not in doubt. I'd really like to see him in interview to have him tell us what those purposes and what those motivations are. And you may well have read it perfectly from what he has given you. So could be. I'm very much of the same line as you. And I was of the same line, I think, in the other version as well. He's used as the means to the end of the film, isn't he? He's the superpower being who comes in and manages to beat up the villain that has been taunting everyone else for the entire film. <laughs> he wipes the floor with them really, really quickly. <laughs> and then it's like, ta-da, there we go, we've finished. We've fixed it, everyone. We've solved the problem. We've got Superman. Through what we've said about all the other characters being very powerful and the power creep i've always got a problem when it comes to superman and how powerful superman is because why would he ever need to team up with anyone apart from maybe another kryptonian if he fancies it why do you now need the justice league because you've just proved that superman can beat up the most powerful villain that's come along in 60 seconds flat they don't do much with his character in this but they don't have despite the running time they don't have time to do any of that in this film he gets brought back from the dead they need to have the quick bringing him back to reality section where he's at the farm and then they need to focus on the fight and everything else that's going on. I think we said in the last podcast, you'd almost need an entire film's worth of, we've brung Superman back from the dead. What does he think about this? Yeah. <laughs> to try and get it discussed. And I almost, in hindsight, thinking now, would this story have been better told, not with the exact same shot by shot split in two, but as two films, in a similar way to how we had... Infinity War and Endgame where you get to a halfway point where you think the villain's got it and it's all going to film with that I've given it more time I don't know I don't think you could do that and still have it the same shot by shot the scene where he decides that he's going to wear the black Superman suit I don't get it why is he picking that one he's just went oh yeah I fancy a colour change we know the reason why because it sells action figures and people went we want to see Superman in the black suit please Please, can we have that, please? Okay, yeah, sure, I'll put it into the film. So we'll have him with his Kryptonian wardrobe and <laughs> uh, swoopy doors and smoke like he's just walking out on stars in your eyes. And another bit I don't get, they've been analysing that ship for quite a while now at the point where we're seeing this film because it was already around in Batman v Superman since Man of Steel, this ship's been there. At no point has anyone went along and pillaged all the stuff 
from the inside of the ship. <laughs> Knowing modern day and everything like that, that would be picked apart. <laughs> We've got these almost invincible suits sitting in there. Hmm, maybe we should have a little look at these almost invincible suits and see what they're made of and nick them all. But anyway, that's a completely different... Tack. I don't think he's served particularly well by this. He is used as a, like you said, Craig, I agree with you, blunt instrument to beat up the villain at the end as a means to an end of this. The final fight in the Joss Whedon version, I hated the whole family stuck in the city trying to escape in the car arc. I hated all that stuff in the last one. I'm glad they got that in the bin. The last time we had Superman carrying a block of flats on his back. <laughs> Anytime you see a superhero carrying an entire bridge on a single palm and flying it over something, you're like, you know, structurally, that bridge was not meant to be held on one girder. That bridge is collapsing. <laughs> Very much the same with a block of flats. There is not a central point in a block of flats where you can hold it up without the rest of it falling to pieces. It was done with a wink to camera laugh thing, and you do snigger at it, but at the same time, you think, oh, go away. <laughs> You can't have this. So I'm I'm glad they got rid of that, but it just seemed to be missing a bit of heart in it. Superheroes actually saving people. That's a novelty, isn't it? Yeah. And at the same time, I hated the stuff with them having all the people in the city. And then at the same time, you go, well, it doesn't then seem like they're actually helping people out. Apart from the scenes that you get with Wonder Woman, Aquaman and Barry, those are the rescuing civilian scenes. The actual Justice League stuff isn't rescuing individuals really oh i suppose you've got the gotham fight actually i'm forgetting that well no but to be fair they are saving the entire world that's got to be worth something oh yeah the entire world the entire world at the time it's not down on the personal level you know that thing you're you know that thing you're standing on if that goes away (laughs) you're screwed but they're in an empty arena is the point that i think you're making chris isn't it yeah, it's kind of more of an arena. That You know what I mean? I, yes, they are saving the entire world. I'm talking about more of a close-up personal level, and they do have the Gotham stuff, so maybe I'm being outrageously cruel at that point. It's just because they've moved away from that, though, isn't it? They've already moved the power level up so high that you can't have that individual level anymore. It's that thing you said right at the start when you're talking about the power level and where on earth are they going to go from here and so on. They've quickly said that they want to, again, it feels a bit like copying Marvel. Somebody said, Marvel's got Thanos. What have we got? Quickly dig up a comic with Darkseid in it. Brilliant. He'll do. Once you go on to that cosmic level, you can't really have your individuals out there anymore. I mean, if you could have a family like the Jetsons flying by, then maybe you could save them. But <laughs> it's not at the level we currently exist at. Street level is way below us now. So I appreciate you saying that you miss it, but I think the power level they've gone to, we've already left that way behind. Oh, yeah. With these kind of films, you definitely do. And what you said about they've got Thanos. Well, in this, they've got grey Thanos. <laughs> you could almost superimpose the Thanos wirework that they've used for the CGI over the top of this. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not the first equivalent, and it won't be the last. No. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, the CGI villains now are getting more and more along the similar lines. I mean, even his, I don't know what his assistant, his PA is called, Darkseid's PA. <laughs> the sad. 
the sides or they're all nicely along the same lines just to make it equally confusing he is very similar to the Azeroth character that they had in Ready Player One that almost <laughs> looked like the same artwork that they had used for that with some slight costume change stuff there's a lot of this when it's getting into the big galaxy wide battle that you go okay the scale is pulling way 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 back I don't know what they could have done with the time that they had available to generate a lot more into what was going on with Superman. I really don't think they could have done much else. You need to cut other stuff in order to fit in that, and I don't even think the running time of the Icelandic ballad would be enough (laughs) to rescue what they did with Superman. Maybe the arrow-firing ceremony as well, get rid of that. Okay, that then gives you an additional scene with Lois and full Martha. (laughs) I think the actual opening of the film was really good in terms of showing what Superman could represent. Again, the other films didn't really do it, but the idea that his death makes ripples that are felt across the world. It wakes up a mother box as well. It's not symbolic because it is literally happening. His scream is travelling so far that it's just impacting different people. But I do like the idea of this death is felt everywhere. And if you had a more complete version of Superman, a more developed version of Superman, that impact would definitely be more impressive than it is. But it's still an impressive moment in itself. But that is a different film. What you've just described yeah. is a different film, though. It's the film where Superman mm. is the hero of Earth, the saviour of humanity, this person that everyone looks up to, this icon, this beacon, and you know he's dead and they have to deal with it. And the film starts by assuming that they've already done that, and they haven't. Well, this is the thing mm. I wanted to see more of, though. This whole idea of, I forget which film it was in, you better tell me, the film where Superman tries to solve the problem of terrorists in another country, and then the UN says, what are you doing? You can't just Batman do it that Superman. way. Yeah, Batman that's how Superman. it starts. But that's such an amazing idea for us to see at this time. As I said before on the previous podcast, it's relevant to our current situation. We don't have Wonder Woman's world war and Captain America's world war problems anymore. We've got problems of disaffected nations and parts of nations that are rising up in scary ways that are hard for us as civilians to even consider, let alone governments to consider. But here comes our saviour, Superman, and he has a very real human problem with it because he's actually affecting the politics without meaning to. Now, this is contrary to the Superman setup. I totally agree that is not the Superman you want to see because he is not this heroic, motivational figure that comes along and everybody wants to be like. But I've seen that already. I was really interested in seeing this new Superman. And we can't have that. And so that's this massive loss to the whole universe. But again, yeah, we don't want that. Nobody wants to see this. Nobody's interested in bringing that back that's not been set up but wouldn't that have been amazing if we'd have had two or three films where superman figured out how to get involved in terrorism how to get involved and do a good thing across the world then get really set up as the world's actual savior because this thing that governments can't do superman just solved it the UN has been discussing this for three years. I fixed it. Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, you have? Yeah. Oh, what's that global warming? I just breathed in the right part of the atmosphere. It's fine. But what are you going to do? 
you're going to go and take all that coal and so on, and I'm going to help you build all these solar farms. Oh, hang on. No, I've just built a solar farm over there. I just need the workers to go in. If you could just go and train a few people, I've built windmills already. If they have set all that stuff up, you really would have felt this. The world would have felt the loss of that because all of a sudden it's like there's another problem the UN's struggling with. Where's Superman? Crap. We're going to have to do this ourselves and we can't because we need this inspirational figure to help us lead us into that. So it is a massive loss to that film. And you're right, it's almost implied. But do we come back to the same problem then? Where was the time to build all that amazing stuff? And by the way, I'm laboring it because that's the film I wanted to see that they took off me. Those jerks. I would love to see the what if film of Superman breeding pandas and (laughs) (laughs) solving greenhouse gas emissions just going along and throwing everyone's gas guzzling car into the sun he's like (laughs) no greenhouse gases into the sun it goes you can walk (laughs) captain planet my ass (laughs) (laughs) the thing is i'm interested in that as well i like the idea of challenging the values of these heroes in order to explore those values. So Captain America, the Winter Soldier, how does Captain America's morality stack up in a world that's more complicated than the one that he's from? Mm. That film directly addresses that problem and it doesn't really answer it, but it tries to. And then in Batman v Superman, you had shades of, he's this guy who's just trying to do good things. But unfortunately, everyone's really cynical about those good things because it has these political implications because of X, Y, Z. He doesn't understand what he's getting involved in. So the idea of a naive hero that just wants to do a good thing, coming up against this resistance because the world isn't as simple as just good and bad like he would like it to be, that's an interesting thing. They didn't do it. They didn't cover it. And as you say, this whole campaign of perhaps inspiring people, making the world a better place through his actions, figuring out how to solve these politically sensitive situations. And people can still be cynical about that. Why is it his place to do it? Well, who else is doing it? You have all these questions that you can throw around there. And it's difficult because there was clear intent to at least cover that to some extent, but they just never do. And then Mm. by the time you get to this film, it isn't there at all. He's just this beacon that was killed and the world is reeling from it. But you only really see that because Lois is upset and can't go back to work yet. And then he comes back and just beats up a bad guy. But what is Superman? What does he represent? You don't really know. Certainly not in this film. No, too late. Too late for that. So what else can he do but beat up an alien? That's what he does. He does do it well. I did like that. Mm -hmm. That final fight scene was much more interesting to watch. I was much more involved in it. I thought it was more exciting. I'm not saying every character had an amazing use, certainly the Flash we've already covered. But generally speaking, in terms of an action scene, I enjoyed that set up a lot more yeah it was exciting i'm not sure what the other justice league members accomplished when he showed up especially when batman just turns up and he just stands there and watches because he can't do anything else that's all he can do yeah but that's kind of the point isn't it the way they've set it up the whole boxes have been activated because there are what are the two things they worried about the box is activated because there are no lanterns and no kryptonians they set that up right from the start if there was a kryptonian knocking around keep your head down mate as any lanterns knocking around, equally, just keep it quiet, wait them out, and it'll be fine. I mean, Superman's only been on Earth for about 30 years or so, and the boxes have been there for thousands of years. So why did they wake up when he died? Because he wasn't there before. Yeah, let's not ask that. 
<laughs> Let's not worry about that in there. How did they friggin' forget where they left the boxes in the first place? That seems like a planet that you would bookmark in your intergalactic directory, <laughs> does it not? Where did I last have the boxes? It's kind of like, where did I put my keys? Where did I leave my phone? Where did I leave my free boxes of infinite power? It's worse than that, isn't it? Because it's, it's not even just the boxes. The bit that I got really confused about, actually, was when the anti-life sigil yeah. comes in. <laughs> Because I was yeah. pretty much okay with the idea that there was the three boxes of complete making and unmaking. That to me felt like, yeah, that's pretty serious if you can just use these three boxes to rewrite a planet. And then all of a sudden, the boxes aren't what's interesting anymore. It's the symbol of unlife. And I got really confused with that, actually. They're two separate powers, aren't they? And if they are two separate powers, first of all, Chris, you'd definitely bookmark it because there's two mega weapons <laughs> down there. <laughs> but, but second of all, why did we need the symbol of unlife? Because we've already got the boxes. I didn't understand why that was there or what relevance it was. Because in the comics, Darkseid's always looking for the anti-life equation and they have to make that part of his motivation somehow. So it literally just crowbarred in. Because the boxes were fine. The boxes were enough. Yeah. That's a shame. That brings us to our villains. And Steppenwolf's our main villain here. And I think he suffers the same problems he does in the other version, as in there's nothing really to him. In the last podcast, Aaron, you said that you saw him as more of a force of nature, which is something I hadn't considered, and it actually made it work in a slightly better way. That's a slight miscurrent, actually. I said Stephen Wolf should have been a force right, yeah. of nature. In that film, I didn't think he was. Not to be pedantic about it, but totally be pedantic <laughs> about it. So carry on. Either way, whether you said that he is or said that he should be, that made me think along different lines than I had previously. But he, at least in that film, he is the big bad. Darkseid's mentioned once, but he never appears. Whereas in this version, he is, from minute one, clearly a henchman. He is the first wave. He's <laughs> the scout. He's the expendable asset that Darkseid is happy to throw at this planet. And he stands around and he explains his motivations to himself. <laughs> he goes and speaks to Desad when he's in that rock that's in the middle of that nuclear plant that he's calling a base. Throughout the film, it keeps reminding you that this guy isn't the big threat that we should be worried about. Darkseid is. But we're dealing with this guy for some reason. And then Darkseid is shown with an army just sitting there waiting to go that for some reason <laughs> just doesn't invade in the first place. So this version doesn't sell Steppenwolf to me. The other version didn't either, but this one even less so. In the last one, he just spent way too long going, mother, <laughs> mother, yeah. mother. And you're going, oh, Give it a rest. In this one, instead of calling out to the mother box, he spends a lot of the time calling up his boss and going, hey boss, have you seen what I've done? Have you seen what I've done? Can you tell the I've boss that I've now. done this? I've, tell I've tell him that I'm now. doing well. Are you proud of me? Did I get a raise? I found a box. I found one. I found one. Oh, oh, tell him. Tell him that I found one. Tell him. Go on. Tell him. Tell me. What did he say? Did he say I did good? Did he say I did good? Oh, please, 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 please. Let me know. Like a golden retriever, the way he describes that. By the way, I found the anti-life equation. That should get his attention. Yeah, you know the thing the boss has been looking for? It's on this planet. Is he going to come over right now? No, he's, he's going to sit and wait a bit. But he could open up a portal and just walk through right now and he could get his little equation-y thing. I've seen it. I know exactly where it is. But he's frightened there might be a guy with an axe there that could hurt him, like last time. <laughs> yeah, imagine you come through just now. Because, as I've said, there's no protectors and I have easily beaten hands down everyone else who has come to challenge me. So if you were to come through right now with your army, you would get the equation thing that 
apparently is the thing that you've been looking for your entire puff. So why not? Plus these three boxes that you discarded on a planet and forgot where they were. Yeah, they literally forget <laughs> yeah. the planet that so, they lost their greatest weapon on. They forget where it is. And in that battle, they had green lanterns there, right? Mm. So surely the lanterns could have went, maybe we should spread these out a bit. Maybe keeping them in one place ain't the best idea, as much as we trust the Atlanteans and stuff. We'll leave Atlantean here, at least. Yeah, we'll leave someone here protecting one of these boxes, or we'll take one. I do like the fact that the Amazons build a massive citadel complex to protect the box with a pool pin that will drop it into the sea to protect it. The Atlanteans have got a big citadel tower that they keep it in, and the humans were like, we'll bury it in a field. Why not? We'll dig a hole that probably isn't even six feet deep and we're just kind of going to drop it in there and just promise not to tell anyone where we've done it. Yeah, but to be fair, that's the best strategy. You're facing the evil supervillain whose greatest weakness is he forgets stuff and can't find it. <laughs> Burying it's the best way to go. The other stuff are putting it in big obvious places with beacons so the bad guy knows where to go with big shiny lights. Look here, big box. Nah, stick it in the ground. No beacons, nothing. That was the worst plan. That was the best plan. It's as good as any, I suppose, but it's quite funny how it's, okay, we gave one box to the Amazonians, we gave one box to the Atlanteans, we gave one box to humans, and... The Amazonians and the Atlanteans, they're really powerful. They can protect it. The humans, what have they got? Nothing. Is there any reason they couldn't have given it to Zeus, for example? Where would they keep it? Surely there was a better choice. There must have been a better choice. But there was only one Green Lantern there, so the Green Lantern Corps didn't know what happened to him. They just saw his ring come back. Yeah. Oh, God knows. Villain-wise, overall, I was a bit, yeah, with the villain. Pretty much the same as I was the last time. I suppose you get slightly more motivation, maybe. That's because he tells you. Yeah, I'm going to destroy the Earth. Why? Because destroying the Earth is what villains do, so I'm going to destroy the Earth, okay? Whereas in this one, you sort of get a little bit more of the we reformat the Earth to our specifications and everyone becomes a subject to us. It still seems like there's plenty other planets that you could take the boxes to that don't have people on and you could have as many planets as you want, but anyway... It's also kind of unclear because I think Wonder Woman says he's from another universe. So what, they've just chucked the multiverse in here while they're at it? Might as well. But <laughs> they haven't really because, well, why isn't he just from another planet? Which is it? What's the difference? But yeah, Darkseid, not impressive because he gets defeated so easily. Just He's hit by an axe while he's distracted by trying to pick the Green Lantern's ring out of the air. And he, as we say, he forgets a planet. Also the anti-life equations on Earth and he forgets where that is. And for some reason, Steppenwolf has a vision of it, but you don't understand why he has a vision of it. He just does. It's very weird. The box tells him about it, isn't it? That's how I saw it. It was like the box goes, oh, by the way, the box remembers that there's something here that you should know about. Yeah, And that Lord of the Rings-esque battle, it's one of those, why are they there doing this? Why are they there trying to bring the boxes together where everyone can just come and stop them? Why not just go and do that somewhere else that's not in the middle of a field of battle? Yeah, you have a spaceship you can pick anywhere on the planet that you want. The others will take a while to get to you. Lure them there with your other ships. Also, let's just have these three witches or whatever it is put these boxes together. Poorly defended by these forces. (laughs) Yeah, it's villain plans go. It's no wonder it fails. I like that we were the first planet to figure it out, though. I like that. Way to go us. it's that whole, don't know how many demons he's faced and how many hells. He's never faced us united. We've got a guy that dresses like a bat, a guy that can run fast. A weird cyborg guy, a warrior with a sword and shield, 
and a dead Kryptonian. On a guy that can talk to fish. On a guy that can talk to fish. We have a guy that can talk to fish. That's going to be useful later. <laughs> what did he promise them? He had promised them 8,000 planets or something like that. I can't remember what the line was. Yeah, it's just strange. But front-loading your film with this guy is a henchman is never a good start. I suppose the best thing you can do is maybe reveal Darkseid at the end, but then you have to wonder why he wasn't there in the first place. It's just nonsense. I'm not actually sure I agree with that part. I can't challenge anything anybody said about the motivation and the stuff, and I've made fun of enough of it as well there. But see that whole force of nature comment. I think there's an argument here for the power level setup. And whereas I'm actually definitely in agreement now with Chris about some of the power level stuff when it comes to Wonder Woman and Aquaman. But I think looking at the notes I've taken, the points where I've written I liked the power levels were because I liked that it was consistent along the lines of who could defeat who when it came to the main event. So I'll stand by everything that comes in the surrounding milieu of who was able to do what, generally speaking. But I don't remember getting the impression from the first film that Steppenwolf was a force of nature. That was my problem with the first iteration of this film. But I remember thinking when I watched this version that Steppenwolf was scary right from the start. Everybody that goes up against him is lost. Even the armies of the Amazonians coming together cannot stop this guy. And when you've established that the Amazonians are powerful, which they have done through previous films, and then Steppenwolf just walks through them. When they establish that the Atlanteans are quite powerful, but Steppenwolf has a bit of trouble, but he still defeats them. I did find his power level was good. And then when it comes to the final fight, they do make it clear that what they've told you early on is true. The five members of the Justice League cannot take Steppenwolf, and it does take a Kryptonian to defeat him. And that was consistent with the plot. So that's where I think I got my power level comments from, even if I admit the rest of the stuff doesn't necessarily stand with that. One of my favorite action scenes is still the fight with Superman at the monument, especially the part where Flash is running around behind him and Superman is just looking I'm following him, and the Flash is like, this doesn't happen. This isn't right. <laughs> Even his main power of being fast is to some degree defeated by Superman. So I think the Superman power level for me is set up well, even if the rest around them isn't necessarily. And the Steppenwolf power level is done well, because I did feel like he was a force of nature in this new cut. And to add on to that, why would you then have the force of nature set up as a henchman? Well, if you're doing it right... You're having all this trouble fighting a henchman. Imagine what the boss is like. He is going to be something that Superman can't take. The dark side problem is the Steppenwolf problem from the first film. I need to be able to believe this guy's power. I now believe Steppenwolf's power, but the way they've set it up is Darkseid must be more powerful than Steppenwolf, because otherwise why would he send him in? And Superman is necessary to beat Steppenwolf. Therefore, the next film logically should be even Superman can't take Darkseid. It's going to take six people of the Justice League all working together to take down Darkseid. That's the threat that should have been there. And it's given to you from the starting point where Steppenwolf is a henchman. And you're thinking, yeah, we're having this much trouble on a henchman? That should be Barry Allen's line. You want us to take Darkseid <laughs> down? Are you insane? Now, I will say that I do not believe that's what they gave us. Because as you say, 
Darkseid is easily defeated by a single X. So it is ruined by those things. But it should have worked. It should have been okay, I think, to do that thing if you then carry on with the consequences of your choices. So I think that's the problem that's in there. He's certainly good with his power levels in the core focus of his one film, but has he actually considered the power levels surrounding that? Arguably, no, not in any way. And that's the problem. Steppenwolf has many problems, but I wouldn't actually have said that was one of them. Yeah, I found his defeat in the other version a bit more interesting as well. To jog your memory, the Justice League make him afraid and the parademons turn on him. He experiences fear and they turn on him. So the idea is the Justice League have managed to inspire fear in this being. Whereas here he just gets defeated and then decapitated and that's him. Which is less interesting. It's more of a character victory in the other one in that way. Because it's, oh, we're afraid of this team now. Well, I wouldn't challenge that. I won't say that's wrong. I I can't. And if I go by everything I've ever been quoted on this podcast before, and interestingly you're starting to quote me, although maybe misquote slightly, (laughs) but say you did have to quote me more, then I'm going to be the person who is going to talk myself into wanting more character defeat. I think that's actually something I would want to see. And, And you're right, that is more interesting. But the reason I'm not calling for it here is because that's not the film that was set up. They spent a lot of time... Because, as you say, Zack Snyder is interested in power levels, that's his thing. If you then set up a film about power levels, I expect to see power levels in the finale. Because that's what you've told me to expect. So I think you're right. I think the other one is potentially more interesting. But this is more fitting to the film that Snyder wanted to make. And therefore... I'm all right with it because it fits in with that. And I think he did that part really well, despite maybe not being the best film that could have ever been. He did that part really well, I think. I guess the problem is you have Darkseid on the sidelines and he's not really doing anything, even though he probably should be. He probably shouldn't have been in the film. He probably should have just been this lingering threat. It should have been just, hey, Minion. Have you solved this minor problem for me? <laughs> no, sir, I've not solved it. You really not solved this really tiny minor world problem for me? Do I have to come down there? It's a bit basic, but at least it means he's not undermining himself by turning yeah. up. But you've made him seem scarier then. So, yeah, maybe cut him from it as just something people talk about. Let's do the Thanos connection again at the end of the first Avengers movie in that post-credit scene. The first post-credit scene, it's the, the reveal that Thanos was there. In every conversation Loki was having with his assistant, Thanos was there, just listening. Mm. When you find out he's there, he's behind this. And again, he sent Loki in because he doesn't think this is a problem that he will need to get involved in because he doesn't expect it to be a problem. And then it becomes a problem. Yeah. You can have your villain underestimate the heroes. That's a good intro, actually. Whereas if this film ended with you seeing Darkseid and thinking, oh, so they killed Steppenwolf. Well, I guess it's my turn. So again, Marvel did it first. Oh, well. (laughs) But instead you just get Darkseid attending meetings. (laughs) And that's about it. (laughs) To be fair, we've all got used to Zoom calls now. So he was kind of phoning it in as well. But I can't really add more to your discussion there i agree that there wasn't really much of a need for him to be in this and unless maybe right at the end as a oh well now i've got to go which is what you got at the end of this it's basically teasing the well i'm going to invade next and this time i'm going to take it seriously and this time i know there's a kryptonian so i'll bring my green rocks (laughs) with me 
that's when you need your other members of the Justice League is once the green rocks come out. So it sort of plays into all the other bits, which is, is any of this going to get taken forward anymore? Well, it won't. That's almost a certainty. But it's a shame, though, because that moment where the Justice League were staring him down through the portal, that sort of unspoken, oh, we really mean business now. We're really in trouble because he considers us a threat and he's going to do everything he can to bring us down. That's a really cool declarative moment that's done without words as well. But again, it belongs in something else. Yeah, it's sort of a this world is defended yeah. stance, but at the same time you can see their sort of hesitation of, okay, <laughs> that was one person. What if he sends 10? Yeah, every member of the Justice League, or certainly Barry is probably thinking, if he doesn't close this portal, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, if the, the army just starts marching through now, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Also, why aren't they? That's another question. Maybe the portal can only be open for a few minutes. Running time is long enough, mate. There's only so much you could do. Maybe it's just this corporate thing where before we decide to do anything, we need to have 50 meetings about it before we can sign off on this. <laughs> Invasions yeah, are tricky it. business. Yeah. There's a lot of paperwork to fill in. Before we'll seize your planet, we need to fill in all the forms. Need to get the budget. Get that agreed. Yeah, resourcing requests, travel and subsistence for the army travelling there. There's a lot of paperwork. So that brings us naturally on to the action sequences. We've actually touched on quite a few of them as we've been going here and there. I don't think there's very much more we can say about Wonder Woman's intro, because we've covered it. She kills people and vaporises someone, and then some little girl thinks that's really cool and wants to be her. That about sums it up, I think. We do have the mother box relay race, which is when Steppenwolf tries to steal it from the Amazonians. It's far more extended than it is in the other version. It's still kind of dumb with the box flying across a grassy field and being shot at with arrows that get it dragged along and whatever else. I wasn't hugely impressed by it. I think Steppenwolf, as you said earlier, Aaron, seems more threatening than he does otherwise. It does feel like they are just trying to keep him at bay and failing miserably. Yeah, I agree. Again, like we've said with other stuff on this, it went on for too long. Even in the first film, I think it went on for too long. (laughs) Yeah, it did. You've got a villain who has the ability to appear apparently anywhere at will using his little beam up, beam down, whatever he's doing, transference thing. He literally could have come down, grabbed the box, went zoop, and he's gone. There you go, done. I get that in these films are like, We've got badass warrior women. Let's show all our badass warrior women doing badass things. Great. Okay, cool. I've got the message. They're good at fighting and stuff. Now, I imagine they must get really bored on that island. (laughs) For a team of warrior women, they don't get to do warrior women stuff very often. They must be really excited when a villain visits. How many thousand years has it been since the last villain appeared on that island? (laughs) Must be a while. So, at least this way, they have something to do with their time. But, yeah, it just went on for too long. I don't need shots showing people in the stables looking over at the light dropping from the sky. That just seems a bit excessive. I don't care what the stable people think of the light in the sky. It really doesn't interest me at all. I think there's some good shorthand in there, though. The idea that these people are willing to die to protect this box. That's accepted. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice ourselves. It's the idea that we'll lock Steppenwolf in here with us and drop it down and people will die doing it. That gives you an idea of the importance of the whole thing. And it's in the other version, but it's not as prominently featured. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. It does highlight the fact that this is how seriously the Amazons are treating this box. But 
you kind of get that from the opening sequence as well. They spend so long following the scream of Superman around for bloody ages, get to the island, and it shows that it's being kept in a secure place surrounded by warriors. We already get the seriousness. The warriors are not there for decoration. They are there to defend that box. Yeah. And then the Atlanteans is a slightly different yet similar sequence. The bit where Mira attacks him is pretty cool. That works really well. Where she surprises him with how powerful she is. Again, it's all about power, isn't it? It's the manipulation of the liquid, basically drawing his blood out through his eyes. That's a (laughs) gory way of using those powers, but very effective. That stuff is why the Atlantean version of that moment is considerably better in my mind than the Amazonian one. Not because I love the gore or anything, but just because... There's this problem, there's a conceit that you have to buy into with the Amazons, and it's quite difficult, I think, which is that for some reason this technologically advanced culture has decided to keep swords and horseback riding (laughs) and arrows, and there's a reason these things got dropped. And if you think about that for too long, you break that conceit and it becomes really difficult to deal with problems like why did Steppenwolf chase after them? If he's got a teleporter, he should just teleport in front of them. And when he does start being a bit more intelligent, it's so welcome. But when you actually think, well, hang on, take that to the natural endpoint then, why didn't he just teleport the Amazon women onto his ship? And you can actually get yourself rounded if you think hard enough, ah, oh, yes, well, but their Amazonian armor and bracelets have got this compound in them that stops them being teleported. Well, yeah, but if they've gone to that effort, why aren't they more like the Wakandan people? I know I'm crossing comics (laughs) here, but just as an example, if they want to keep these older ways, they can still embrace the technology, but include it more. In Wakanda, you still fight for dominance. The king has to fight the challenger to show his worth. That's where you keep the old school ritual in. But when it comes down to it, by the way, sister, have you got any really cool tech? Well, actually, yes. How do you like all these cars and devices and suits and what have you? Really, you have to just ignore that and you have to just say, no, Amazons use swords and bows and horses. I personally find it a little bit difficult to stay in that conceit and accept it. And so the fights do seem to go on a bit for me in the same way as yourself. But conversely, then, when you go to Atlantis... They really do seem to be much more into their technology. They have embraced it. They do have their powers. They are able to part water and make gravity all of a sudden a problem. Hey, surface dweller, you remember gravity? (laughs) That's just so sensible to use your technology to help you fight. As Chris says, to use your ability to control liquids to go inside somebody and really threaten them. And that not only is a bit more interesting because it's not just somebody bashing somebody else over the head continuously, but it shows that these Atlanteans are intelligent and they've thought about it and the writers have thought about it and the directors thought about it. Arguably, you could take it to a greater extreme. They're still a very physical people that hit each other a lot. So they've not really pushed the boat out on that, but they've pushed it out much further than the the Amazons have. And the comparison, I think, really doesn't help trying to accept the Amazon fight. At least the Amazon fight comes first. 
if they had to go the other way around and the Amazons had to follow the opening act of the Atlanteans, they'd be, yeah, we can't follow that. That's not going to be interesting. Sorry, just cut to the, <laughs> the chair. Yeah. So it's a shame, I think, for the Amazons that that's in there. But it is because Amazons are cool, or at least that's what being offered to believe. But in an argument, actually, I think what it comes down to is Atlanteans are cool. In the cool fight, I think I know where I'm going. Yeah, no, that's fair. And yeah, it is a better use of Mira's specific skill set than, say, the Amazons on a horse just throwing this box around trying to keep it out of Steppenwolf's grasp because it doesn't feel like they're ever going to win at any point and it's not clear what they're trying to achieve either as it just gets slightly further away it just seems like an inevitability that he'll get the box whereas with the Atlanteans it seems like less of an inevitability because they could win in theory in theory yeah they offer a chance because there's a lot more ocean to swim in than there is island to run a horse over you can get the box further away (laughs) it's always going to be on that island isn't it just drop it at the bottom of the ocean can steppenwolf survive that kind of pressure probably but there's nothing to say why not (laughs) he could survive that pressure but he can't survive his head getting stood on but that's by dark side he has a stronger foot than anyone else that's true he has well strong feet (laughs) he does powerful feet very powerful feet mighty powerful feet He's wearing his alien metal toe-cap boots. But are they as strong as Wonder Woman's stilettos? There's only one way to find out. Justice League 2. Not possible, but yes. To find out for sure. For science, yeah. Well, you do see Darkseid jump out of a ship and land... Not in high heels, he doesn't. <laughs> no, 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 that's a different thing. Cross-dressing Darkseid, that's what we want to see next. That's cool. Some good points there. There's the first Justice League team-up sequence... I listed it as a hostage sequence and Chris pointed out offline that Wonder Woman's intro is also a hostage sequence. So it's easy to confuse them. But I mean the first sequence where they fight together. We've talked a little bit about it as in what was missing. Barry isn't afraid of the situation in the way that he is in the other version. But it is the same setup. There's people held captive because they've had contact with the mother box and Steppenwolf wants to put a spider in their brain to, to get them to reveal where they've seen this mother box, which is weird but it's also kind of funny how it starts with each of the justice league finding their own way to clear a small gap barry runs over wonder woman jumps over cyborg flies batman uses grappling hook it's just this really long sequence of there's a small gap here that we have to get across and i don't understand why it's needed as a showing of anything really yeah that was a bit of a weird We're going to pause here for a moment. Let's discuss how we're going to cross this bridge. Barry just gets on with it and then everyone else sort of follows over. When Superman gets resurrected, it's like, we need to see how you can cross this small gap. Ultimately, what I really want to see is someone carrying Batman across. (laughs) That's what I want, is just a slow humiliation of Batman getting carried by Cyborg over a gap. Or like Gimli, he gets tossed over. No one tosses Batman. (laughs) Just throw him him (laughs) Yes. Please. Sorry. Sorry, Batman fans. <clears throat> yes, he uses his grappling gun. It's fine. Not sorry. Totally here to make fun of Batman. Sorry. Out of everyone there, who needs a gadget to cross a small gap? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It looked like he could have jumped out. I don't know. I'm getting obsessed with a small gap that they have to clear. It's just such a weirdly long moment. Yeah, it seems out of place. But I mean, they used every single establishing shot. So why not every shot of them <laughs> crossing a small hurdle on their way in? Yeah. If there's one thing this film needed, it was something to pad and put some gaps in these seats. <laughs> there's a few logistical issues with that sequence. And they mostly centre around Barry. There's the point where they're trying to get everybody out. And they're climbing up the stairs. And Barry just keeps running up the stairs, just telling them to hurry up. 
where he could have them out in a fraction of a second. It's just really weird that he's, come on, guys, hurry up. We need you to go here. Come on, Barry, drag them out. (laughs) You could have done this by now. This is a really odd thing. And he's also needed there where Batman is getting his ass kicked by parademons. Barry could be there. Yeah, Batman's like, I'll distract them. I'll mildly annoy them for the next 15 minutes. You get these people out of here. It does him a bit of a disservice when he has to pick up their guns to use against them as well. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, it's it's true. It's like, Barry, you'd probably be more of a help here. Because the first one, Barry knocks, goes through about two walls, does he not? Yes. And it pushes him out of the way. Weirdly, they very quickly establish who the most effective combatants are in that sequence. Aquaman's not there yet. Cyborg is kind of doing his own thing, although he's very effective. Barry's very effective. Batman is kind of useless. Wonder Woman is taking on Steppenwolf because she's the only one there that's equipped to do that. And she's holding her own against him, which is, again, that thing you were saying about not clear what she can do or how powerful she is, because she doesn't seem to be having a lot of trouble with him on her own at that point. Yeah, exactly. So you would think adding another three Justice League members to that fight, you should win, surely. But, yeah. Yeah. I did like the bit with the falling rubble, though, where you saw Barry lit up in the... You saw how fast he was going from the outside non-slow motion perspective. That really stood out to me. Oh, with the shots of him sort of jumping overhead and picking up the rubble. Yeah, I I did like that. That was neatly done. That was quite a nice cinematic thing to see. Yeah, then he missed one and Cyborg had to get the last one, as you do. The resurrected Superman fight, we've touched on that a bit. There is the moment in there, like there was in the last version with the Flash running and then Superman turning around and seeing him and Barry looking really terrified. It's a much longer sequence and... Parts of it I don't like, such as Superman clearly killing army people, just blasting them mm. with heat vision and murdering them. I'm not sure they show that, actually. They do make a lot of effort to show you the people running away. I don't actually think we saw him killing anybody. I will admit that we saw him try to, because he was throwing it, but he is supposed to be evil Superman at this point. Or confused Superman. Or confused Superman. I don't think he broke character there, so I don't think it's a problem. And the fact that... He doesn't kill anybody, therefore is more luck than judgment. But they do that a lot with characters that are good, so they don't have to give them an emotional hangover where they can't recover from it. But I'm pretty certain if you watch through it, nobody gets cut in half, nobody gets burnt. They all manage to open the doors and leg it. Because I remember thinking that at the time, is he going to kill anybody? Because I've just seen this with Wonder Woman and with her, it's like, yep. Straight to that. Nobody's hiding that. Fair enough. But I'm pretty sure Superman works by the old A-team perspective. (laughs) The lights go everywhere, but conveniently miss everyone. And I think it is. I'd actually have to watch again to be sure, but I do think everybody was fine at the end. I don't know. They're definitely slightly cooked. He goes after those free Humvees and they explode. And there were people standing next to them. Yeah, but they all duck and run away. It's the whole chainsaw principle coming at your face. Just because there's an explosion and you get covered by fire doesn't mean anything bad. <laughs> I think they go back to the old rules. Yeah, yeah. As long as you duck and cover, the nuclear weapon cannot hurt you. It's those principles. I'm not totally sure. If somebody watched it shot for shot, I think they could disprove me if they do it. But I'm pretty sure A-team rules apply at that point, and they clearly do not apply earlier on with one woman. There's the police cars as well that he attacks. Yeah, the poor guy who's just been sitting there getting coffees every morning with Lois. Yeah. That's a shame. That's like our best pal that she's been buying expensive coffees for all this time. 
now he might be heat visioned in two. We don't know. But he probably <laughs> just snuck out the back door. And it's <laughs> <laughs> It'll be all right. That's the way these things go. And everyone running around yelling Clark when there's people with an earshot <laughs> that shouldn't be hearing people yelling Clark. <laughs> the other film had that problem too. Yeah, it's still prominent in this one. I think in the last podcast we had a very long discussion about Clark Kent turning up at work a couple of weeks later after faking his death. <laughs> we won't repeat that discussion, but we had a very fun one on the last podcast about it. Hi guys, I know you were all at my funeral a few weeks ago or a few months ago, whatever it is. I'm back. Let's just ignore the fact that Superman is also back. We're not going to deal with that. Don't worry, these films will never come to anything, so we don't have to actually address that at any point in the future. <laughs> this is all true and joke-worthy. I'm not going to challenge any of that. I will still say, though, that if I put all that aside, which is actually possible not to do, there again is another conceit. Can you put it aside or can't you? I can, just because this is probably still my favourite action sequence of, of the whole film. Not only because I do think it is just cool, but it does again fit in with what they've set up. Like it or not, Snyder has set up something where power levels are the most important thing. And if you don't like that, then you can't like half the stuff that's coming in there. So fair enough on that. But if you can accept it, it's important to me, this scene, because everybody goes at the Kryptonian. We know we need a Kryptonian simply because they are the only power level that can solve our problem. But what happens then if you can't control the Kryptonian? You've just doubled your problems. And that's very much, I think, in the faces of the actors when they're looking at this. You can actually see that, yeah, this is a problem. <laughs> and all of Aquaman's, I don't think we should do this. It's very much, I was right. <laughs> just, just saying, everything I said, you just proved it. This is bad. And that is delivered to me by the actors. And they try and do everything that they can. They try and fight. And it doesn't work. Diana tries to talk to him and it doesn't work. They try everything they've got. They even gather together and he's holding off three of them and he's fine. <laughs> got an Aquaman, a Wonder Woman and a Cyborg. I'm all right. Oh, I'm not really going anywhere quickly, but I'm fine. And then the Flash runs up behind him and by the way, yeah, I can take that too. <laughs> and he just throws them all away and then he goes for the Flash. And the Flash is scrabbling. He's actually desperately just trying to get away. The best he can do is avoid Superman's swing, which to be fair, it's pretty good. <laughs> you can avoid a super swing. You're right up there. You're playing on top table here, but that's the best he can do is get away. And this whole, how do you convince people of what someone's power level is? That scene does that for me. It convinces the audience that this is the reason you need Superman, because he is that much better than the rest of you even put together. It solidifies and puts a cap on that in such a way. It's not exposition. It's not somebody telling you. They're actually showing you. And it's brutal because you know if there was just a, I can't even use the word microsecond or nanosecond, I really need to go down into picoseconds, whatever it is, a picosecond slower and the flash is dead. Yeah. And I believe that. I actually believe. If you'd have asked me in the moment, do you think they're going to kill Flash? Of course I would have said no. <laughs> but in the emotional moment, I believed that the Flash was in danger. And all this is given to me. And how do you actually solve this problem? You have a single human being coming up and using a weapon that's even more powerful, which is this idea, of course, that they have a loving connection. And when you actually say to somebody, I mean, I'm quite 
a cynical bugger, quite frankly. If you said to me, we're going to solve this scene with the power of love, I would set fire to you <laughs> because it sounds just so pathetic. It sounds so hippie love magic. But there's a reason that we actually use that as a powerful force. You know, love is a powerful force in our universe. It just has to be done right. If it's going to look good, if it's not going to be a trope, if it's going to be meaningful, you have to do it right. And they do do it right from my perspective. When Lois comes up and says, Clark, please, and he stops fighting, that is an emotional moment that I do feel. And it shows that she can do something that the other five members of the superpowered justice team can't even achieve, which is control this force. They've shown from the epilogue could be a destructive force from the universe. You know, this is really dangerous. All of those things put together for me still says this is the best scene, best action scene, if, if you will. I don't know, maybe it's the best scene. I don't <laughs> even know. It's certainly one of my top scenes from the whole film because all of that is coming together and bringing in the rest of the film into it. And if you said, yeah, but what about all those things we've just made fun of? You're right. I completely agree. I can't challenge any of those. Really can't. But despite that, this scene was able to pull me out of my cynicism and say, watch me. This is important. And I did. And I could only get to the things you said after the fact. So it's, uh, yeah, top scene for me even despite what we've been saying about and it. And what does Batman do in that scene? Absolutely nothing. He has his gauntlets that can ward off heat vision to some degree, but that's it. Do you know, for me, that's actually kind of the point, because part of the scene is none of you can do anything. All of you are going to bring your top-level power here. Some of your powers are a bit boring. <laughs> Aquaman, I hit things. Yep, that's not going to work. <laughs> Wonder Woman, I hit things. Oh, that's not going to work. I'll try talking, though, because I am a bit cleverer than rest. Still not going to work. Flash, run fast, nope. Cyborg, lots of weaponry. Hit fast, do lots of good things. I'll try and get into your head. Oh, wait, you're not a computer and you fail. What's Batman's actual superpower? His intelligence. And this is where we talked about it earlier. Batman was defeated in this scene because even his intelligence cannot get round the power that is confused Superman. Now, it should have been. And they robbed him of this, and that's why that is bad, because it should have been Batman that defeated Superman here by bringing in Lois Lane, because that's the only thing he brings to this table. He can't stand on the A table. He can't play with them at their own games at all. But he's deserved his seat at the table because he's so smart, and he should have brought Lois there, and they robbed that of him. So that's bad. That is actually how they managed to ruin this scene in there because they took Batman's intelligence away from him. But if you're going to do that, then the point has to be still, none of you can defeat Superman. You really can't. It's over. You've lost. It's only Lois that can solve this problem. So it fits. It's actually wrong. I've got to give you that that is wrong. What Chris said earlier, that scene has been changed for the worse. Mm. But perversely, it still follows the main theme. The only person that can stop Superman is Lois. So uh, I'd have changed what led up to it. But once Lois is in there, it is what it is and good for it. Yeah, you'd think Batman would have some kryptonite still kicking about that he could have brought with him as well. But again... He's robbed of his intelligence. It would have ruined the moment, actually. He could have brought Kryptonite or he could have brought Lois and bringing Lois was yeah. better. Lois and Kryptonite. There we go. He's, well, yeah, he's thought of everything. Though. Totally prepared. Yeah. <laughs> if Lois doesn't work, get out yeah. the rocks. 
he wears his kryptonite bat suit. Ha, let him touch me now. But also, I think they do a good job of raising the stakes before that sequence because you have this whole conversation about the mother box and it's, we need Superman back in order to defeat this threat. But in doing so, we're going to be activating the mother box, which is going to lead the villain right to it. So if we fail, we really fail here. We are screwed. So they have to really be sure that they're doing the right thing here. And I don't think they really have as good an ethical discussion as they could, but at least I understood why they arrive at it more than I did in the other version. Because the other version was, well, what if these powerful boxes can uh, regenerate Kryptonian cells? That might work. And then they're like, yeah, cool, let's do that. But in this version, it's, no, it can reorganize everything. So the smoke becomes a house, I think is the quote, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, it can solve that problem that nothing else can solve. So even though it's the same magic nonsense, at least they do a little bit of a better job of explaining it, but they don't really have a proper debate about it. There's no positions on it, really. There is a bit of a... This this could be problematic. This could be unethical. This could be messing with forces we don't understand, whatever. But they don't go into it in any detail, which in a four-hour film surprises me. Yeah, as we've said, to solve some of these problems, it needed to be... uh, Do you know, I've landed at 12. I think I need to keep going up. As far as we go, each time I need to add two hours on. So it needs to be a 16-hour film. (laughs) Oh, please, no. If his original vision of a trilogy played out in this way, you're not far off. 16-hour film, can you imagine? (laughs) Imagine how long the podcast would be. No, we wouldn't survive. (laughs) There's only so long that things can be... But yeah, I I do agree with you. I do enjoy the sequence where they fight confused Superman. And it does set up the idea of how threatening he will be when he turns. Because there's that whole thing about when they commit to resurrecting him, they commit to that dark future, I guess, that is ultimately going to be resolved by a giant reset button. As is also set up. In theory, but not interesting enough to comment on. Well, we're never going to see it, so it doesn't matter. But that's how the final battle ends, with a reset button, because the villains win. And actually, because the trailers had featured the destroyed, scorched earth, and because we'd seen that vision that Bruce had in Batman v Superman and so on, all those things, it led me to think that the ending of this film was them losing and creating that dark future that they then had to undo in the next one. Obviously, that's not how it plays out, weirdly. It plays out kind of similar to the other version in that way, but there is the moment where the villains win and then Barry discovers he can travel through time, which he did earlier. He reversed time before he touched the mother box, but he properly does it here. Aaron, you're a big time travel guy. What's your thoughts on essentially the ending being a, oh, the villains win. Oh, no, they didn't. I didn't get enough out of that to enjoy the rewinding of time. Do you know, the strange thing is I don't even necessarily remember. I've only just recently watched the film. I do remember that there was time travel, but honestly, I can't remember what choice Barry changed. I don't remember what he did differently. He just ran back to the moment where he could touch Cyborg instead of not touching Cyborg. If you're going to do time travel and make it interesting, then it needs to be an emotional choice, I think, to really make it connect with any human, because otherwise it's just another laser that happens to go into the fourth dimension instead of through the standard three. It's just another yellow beam or green beam or Harry Potter wand that gets waved in the right way. So if you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have even remembered it. That's how little (laughs) it impacted on me. It did potentially feel just like What's Barry's other power than running fast, time travel? Better use it. Somebody's talked about setting up flashpoints somewhere. So maybe we should just introduce time travel here too. And we've got this epilogue going on where we're going to use time travel to solve this problem. 
So we kind of need to lay the foundations of that. No, you don't. Leave it alone. Stop the epilogue, burn the whole thing. <laughs> but too late. So, no, I didn't value any of the time travel in this film. Well, I mean, if you want to hear our views of time travel, then you can listen to the time travel podcast, which we recorded in the future and then sent back to the past. It's available somewhere in your timeline. Time travel in this, time travel is such... We talk about power creep. Isn't the ultimate power creep the ability to time travel? Isn't that the... I can undo any wrong decision at any moment of choosing to fix something that I think has gone wrong. Now, obviously, it leads to the big thing in Flashpoint, but even minor points where you go, oh, I didn't quite save that person in time. Whoop, time travel, save them, da-da, done. It's a jeopardy stealer in certain aspects. Now, I get that the reason that they've probably introduced it in this is because they wanted to use it for the sort of dark future plot line, plus they're teasing the whole Flashpoint thing. That's why they've introduced time travel in this. You've had it in the past where you got the visions that Bruce got, the Flash traveling back in time to tell him that Lois is the key, all that sort of stuff. We've had it. I'm not a massive fan of it. I don't think it adds tons to this. It makes it seem just really silly in the end. And I I don't quite get why they went down that line, but they did. I think it can cheapen stuff, and it makes that character even more uber-powerful than he was already. If it's just for teasing it in a trailer or doing a plot twist, it's not much of a plot twist because by the time you're like, oh, they've won, you're like, oh, they've not won because he's about to change time. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's not a long play by any means. It's not, oh, how's this going to succeed? What's going to happen? It's literally, he misses the boat, the blast goes off, he avoids it somehow and goes back in time and fixes it and then it's done. Oh, right. The bits he does with hearing things through the timeline, whatever, I think that's neat. But overall, yeah, I'm very the on the whole subject. It's especially egregious as well because they make such a big point out of, I can't maintain the speed for very long. <laughs> and then he gets shot and injured, and then he has to use some of his strength to heal himself, you would imagine. At least he has to wait until he's healed. And then suddenly he's going faster than he's ever gone before so he can run back in time. It's very inconsistent how fast is Barry, how powerful is Barry. And funnily enough, we say the same things about the TV show. He's way faster than this. This shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, when you start listing out his abilities, The Flash is one of these characters that is almost near invincible at certain points because he's the fastest thing around. He can avoid, if you want to blast him with energy or whatever, he can avoid that. If you're going to punch him, he can avoid that. And now he can wind back time if he makes a bad decision. In the TV show, it's always, how is he always late? How is he always arriving after the thing has happened, after it's too late to stop the initial thing? Because we've previously established how fast he is. So after this point, there's no threat to Barry, is there, really? Well, there shouldn't be, but we know what happens is that they (laughs) conveniently forget that that ability is available. I mean, the thing is, the lesson that he's going to learn, Flashpoint, the whole point of Flashpoint, is he goes back, changes something, and it has repercussions. And that's the point where he goes, oh, well, maybe time travel is a bad idea. However, the lesson that he's getting out of this one is, oh, time travel worked. Saved the world. Worked really well. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, that was a great idea. I should do that more often. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, that end sequence was quite standard. Batman driving in on his Batmobile and blowing up the force field and whatever. It was all right. Him manning the turrets. That was new. 
We didn't see that in the other version. Yeah, it made good use of him. I mean, we were asking, what's the point of Batman in these things? Well, that gave him a purpose for that fight. He flew the ship, threw the, the shield, collapsed the sort of dome that was around it that meant that the people on the ground could get in. It gave him a lot more of a purpose than he had had previously. Hmm. There's no way that ship should have been able to take off at the end when it goes <laughs> to pick them up. But apart from that, yeah, fine. No, Cyborg fixed it. You just didn't see it. Yep, he was down there with his wrench, sorting out the panelling, replacing broken engine parts. Totally. On the subject of Batman or Bruce, I really liked, you didn't get much of it, but the back and forth he had with Alfred in certain scenes. I really liked it when the whole league went into the Batcave and he was like, this is Alfred, I work for him. Things like that. That was a nice little moment. And Alfred making tea and not trusting Diana to make the tea. That was a good one as well. I feel cheated out of a film with those two characters. All the films I've had them in, it's always really been a sort of third part. It's been because they're focusing on Superman as well. So you don't get much. And I kind of feel cheated out of that pairing. We get a lot more of it in this. I really like the dynamic between them. I think it's very neat, but I feel cheated that we haven't had a full Batman film. Even though this film tries to set one up with the Deathstroke scene. (laughs) Uh, uh, That's not the one I'm talking about. (laughs) What's good about that is they do bring them in as older characters as well with that history. I mean, it is from different films, but as you say, I'm right up there. This is two actors and a character that I would have definitely liked to have seen more of. I don't see any way it can possibly happen. It might be in the Flash movie, because Ben Affleck's in that. Maybe. But he's a really good Batman. That's a really good Alfred. They bring a universe that I don't think we've seen before, and we've seen so many Batman universes. It's really difficult to create something new. I mean, they had an easier starting point, maybe from the fact that nobody's really done an older Batman before, so that was a good angle. But I don't think that is a summary of their performance. I think the two of them, as Chris has described, bring a lot more to it than that. Really want to see those wind-up penguins. It's got to happen. You feel the history. You do. It is evident in the way they interact. And the way Alfred challenges Bruce in ways that others can't or won't. A proper working relationship that's come from a history of being together. Yeah, And it's that paternal relationship as well, because Alfred is that father figure. I suppose it's evolved beyond that at this point, but Alfred is... Asking him, why are you doing this? What is your purpose behind this? And he's constantly challenging Bruce to explain himself, which gives you that natural lead into his motivations, fine, but it also gives you that history. This is someone that keeps Bruce on track, kind of. Didn't say anything when he was off murdering criminals or branding them or whatever, but kind of (laughs) keeps him on track a little bit. Yeah, well, he probably designed the bat brander, didn't he? He's the kind of gadget guy in this as well. Yeah. I like that it seems a relationship of equals, despite the fact that Alfred isn't going out there and beating up the bad guys. It's both of them doing it. It's both of them working on it, not just like a crusade that Bruce is on and Alfred is hesitantly on the sidelines. Yeah, well, Alfred's remote piloting the vehicles, isn't he? When Bruce isn't driving them. He's helping out. He is sort of the man in the chair kind of thing, which I know in in the other films kind of more like a, a Lucius Fox kind of, bit than Alfred but I I thought that was quite a welcome addition he's building all these different gadgets like the gauntlets for absorbing (laughs) all that sort of stuff maybe you should try a lasso next in black of course that was a good one Mm. little bits of that and I didn't bring it up at the time but Aaron you were talking about the dark and gritty tone I actually think this film is quite interesting in the way it juggles tone because it does take into account that these characters are all different and therefore the tone changes to suit the character that's maybe the focus of a scene 
but it's not that thing I was afraid of, that uniform, just grim and bleak atmosphere that I find quite draining. I think there was plenty of variety in there, and it does acknowledge that these characters do bring different things to the mix. And it plays around with it quite nicely, I think. I think we've already said, and I'd stand by it, that it does cut part of that darker angle. Batman is a bit older, the Flash is a bit younger, and they have to come together to solve both parts of that problem of time. They do bring some parts of it in, but I would argue that they still need to choose, push it further one way or the other. They're still dancing around both because they've pulled a few things back into this. And I think you said yourself, you reckon you've lost Aquaman because of it. And he's going to be a casualty of this choice of, are we really going to go dark or are we going to go light? Or are we really going to put the characters each under their own lens and see how they come together? So maybe they've still got some of that angle with Batman in there and certainly with Wonder Woman definitely but I don't know if I would agree that I think they've done really well with it because it seems to me that it's in certain places but it's been taken out of other places like you said with Batman and it's not necessarily done so coherently because you've lost that corner and he's fallen into the dark when his movie was fixed to become lighter and people like that. That seemed to be what was wanted. So I like the fact that they've played with it. I think they did some good things with it, but I think they didn't make a choice. They didn't stick to that choice. It's not coherent. And whereas some good things have been put in, quite a lot of things have been lost on balance because of it. So I did like some of the things you're talking about, but I'm not convinced I could say they've done a good job with it, I'm afraid. Oh yeah, it's not perfect, but it's... Just interesting that they've taken into account the fact that these different characters command different tones and they're not just all homogenised under one bizarre roof, which in a lot of ways the theatrical version ends up doing. It ends up making everybody just a quippy Joss Whedon-type character in some scenes, in the scenes that he wrote, of course, which doesn't quite fit. You even get Batman quipping away, which doesn't suit him. Here he has a bit of a dry wit around him, which works for him. He's not humourless but it's just he's very particular when he will deploy his humour. And that works. Yeah, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying they miss completely. I think it's just somewhere in the middle. I'm not prepared to say they've done a really good job, but I would never say they've done a bad job. It's interesting they've put some things in, and some of it's been done well and some of it's better. But I'm reasonably certain it's one of those things that falls into, this is too difficult to fix after the fact. There's too much that wouldn't need rewriting to really give you that uh, full strength. Yeah. We had quite a discussion about this the last time, and I've still kind of come down the same angle. I don't think they've chosen a track that they want to go with these films yet. And every film that they've done, they've went, oh, let's try it this way. Oh, no, that wasn't a bit more comedy. Oh, no, that that wasn't right. Oh, we're going to make it darker because they want it. No, no, that didn't work. But they need to build the fan base based on a tone. If you keep chopping and changing it about, folk don't know what to expect. And that's why you end up with constant disappointment. The people that want it to be darker don't get the darker film because you keep throwing in comedy lines. The people who are wanting the happier, bubblier, more Marvel-esque universe not that that doesn't have its dark moments don't get their thing either you end up in your attempt to please everyone you please no one and i think they kind of need to decide on a tone after this film they then came out with the statement of well we're just going to focus on doing individual films for individual characters and not focus on joined up storytelling it's going to be doing what's best for them 
they then kind of go back on it every once in a while and go, well, actually, we're going to do this now. Ben Affleck's in The Flash, so we're doing that again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is all part of the same story again. So, I don't know. It's like you think they've nailed it, and then you go, oh, okay, not quite. We remember before the Joss Whedon one, that was when Wonder Woman had come out and had great success, and people went, oh, 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 we think they might have found it. And then it goes back that way again. So I think the film itself was pretty consistent in its tone. If we're going to judge it on just the film, I think it was pretty consistent to itself. It did have some humour. It did have some light moments. The things that stand out for me are the Flashy's job interview skit or bits like that. You go, that doesn't seem like that's part of this film. That just seems off the wall to me. Yeah, Having the scenes of him speaking to his dad in prison and coming from that quite dark place, that all is lost, just abandon me here attitude, as opposed to here's a quirky job interview where he's feeding hot dogs and going on about, oh, this city, you won't know what will happen next. Oh, dearie me. I'm such a klutz being late, despite the fact I'm the fastest man alive. Waha! All that sort of stuff didn't quite fit for me. But the rest of the film totally seemed to click. Yeah, fair. So we have touched on... The epilogue, the extended epilogue. (laughs) Yeah, and I think the scene that we should definitely talk about is the one where Bruce is dreaming of a dark future again, where Ben Affleck's Batman and Jared Leto's Joker share screen time because no one asked for it, apparently. I don't like Jared Leto's Joker, although I do think he's better here than he is in Suicide Squad. Admittedly, that's not saying much, but (laughs) he does seem to be in there just sort of crazily delivering exposition you have the whole thing about lois lane is pregnant in the background that's haphazardly thrown in and it's been revealed in interviews that Zack snyder's plan was for bruce and lois to get together and raise superman's son after superman turns evil and the son might get killed or something i don't know but you you get that whole thing about bruce sent in a boy wonder to do a man's job or whatever it is and, and gets killed and the joker delivers all that exposition so I don't know. What did you think of that scene? I didn't really like it that much. It's just a bit overkill, and I don't know why it's there. Bruce is having another dream about a dark future, but why else is it there? There's no reason to do it other than maybe Snyder was saying, look, this is what you would have got if you'd allowed me to carry on. I can't see any good reason to give us that scene other than a promise of future, and we can't have the future, so it's more of a a stick in the face to somebody to say, this is what you would have got if you just trusted me. And I don't like that. I'm not saying it was, but that's the only reason I can think of it, to be there. And and I've said, even in this podcast, I didn't want to see any of the epilogues. There was no value in it. There was nothing good about it. Perversely, it actually does, for me, go opposite to yourself, though, because I want my dark and gritty Batman, I want my Ben Affleck and I want my Jeremy Irons because I really like those two characters and the characters that they've set up. I stand by what I said before. I think Jared Leto gives you the Joker that naturally goes with them. And I liked that Joker. I don't know that I liked that Joker by itself. I don't know that I would have said I liked it specifically because of what it was. And it's not a standalone Mona Lisa piece that you can just look at. What I've meant to say when I've been talking about this before is I think that Jared Leto Joker is the perfect mirror to what the Batman is in the universe I wanted to see. He's horrid. He's just nasty. He's not necessarily theatrical. 
He's not dancing around and telling jokes. He doesn't give you a 60s joker. He doesn't give you any of your modern jokers. He is a brutal, hideous terrorist whose sense of humor makes a lot of sense to him, but to everybody else is just awful. And that doesn't sound necessarily very attractive by itself, but I don't think it necessarily is supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be. If you have a hideous world, a hideous world creates a hideous person. Not one of these lovely people that you, oh, I love to watch the Joker and how cruel he is. No, if you saw somebody who was as cruel as the Joker, you would run screaming in tears because it would be horrific. You would not want to see that Joker. And that Jared Leto, to me, is where he was going. And that's not welcome in a nice, happy universe. That's not welcome in a Batman with a loiter tone. It's not welcome in the Batman that you're even seeing with the crazy comic book villains. I mean, good grief, I've seen Gotham and seen the villains <laughs> that are in that, and they are nuts. They're not horrid. They're just weird and crazy and theatrical. So it actually doesn't even fit the Batman that is necessarily in the comics. But that's not what I was after. I was after the Joker that fitted with Ben Affleck's Batman, and I think it really does. And it would have been horrible, and it would have been an 18 film because it would have been so horrible. So I can see why you wouldn't have wanted to watch that, Craig. And I totally get that. It makes a lot of sense, but I stand by it. And I've spent a lot of time here just because I am quite passionate about that film that I would have liked to have seen. But it's perverse because all of that conversation about what happened to the boy Wonder is what I would have liked to have seen played out in its glory. I don't want to see him die. I would have liked to have seen the story around it or the story after it, because it would have been brutally moving to see the Batman, who's so intelligent to potentially make that mistake and regret it for the rest of his life. And why did he make some of the decisions that he made in Batman versus Superman? Why did he make some of the decisions that he made in the Justice League is because of Robin. Maybe why did he try and keep the Flash away from danger? Because he's a young kid and he wanted to protect him when he shouldn't have done. And there's your development. You wanted character development for Batman in Justice League? It's the Flash. We've already been given this. We've been given it in The Boy Wonder. This was given to us in all the build-up to it. He should have gone in and been really nervous about putting the Flash in. Aquaman, front line. Wonder Woman, get up there and fight everything. You can take <laughs> care of yourself. Flash, where are you going to be? In the back, packing the sandwiches. <laughs> Why? I can do it for me. No, no. <laughs> I remember Robin. This is where you have to be. And his development is he fails with Robin. He succeeds with Barry. So all of this stuff is teased and promised with these characters. And when I see Jared Leto's Joker, again, I'm seeing these films that could have been. I'm seeing these really emotional moments, these heart-rending moments that could have been on camera. And that is why I say I still want to see them. I even see it through the Joker. Did I get any of that value from the epilogue? Nope. <laughs> Burn it. Get rid of it. Not interested. Give me the film. Take the Joker that you've got. Take Ben Affleck that you've got and put him in that film. And it will be the Batman film that I will say is my favorite forever. <laughs> It's not going to happen. Instead, I get this epilogue. So where's my lighter? <laughs>
Aaron, you've hit the nail on the head with everything that you've said there. The epilogue itself can get in the bin. I've got no interest in the epilogue whatsoever. The fact that they actually spent some of the money on reshoots just on this damn epilogue, (laughs) to me, is laughable. I just, I do not understand it whatsoever. Okay, it was going to be in your original masterpiece, but really, now you record this with the money that they've given you? No, okay. What you've teased there is great. I would love to see more about the film about Ben Affleck's Batman putting Robin at risk living to regret it that sounds like a really interesting sort of not an origin story but just a standalone batman film great mm-hmm. even this what if I'm, I'm gonna put it in a what if category film rather than something that follows on from this that we've seen a what if evil superman because reasons and this world I'm kind of interested in that what if. I kind of am. But the epilogue itself can get in the bin. And so much of this film, the stuff that gets teased out there, I don't know if Zack Snyder put these in on purpose just to try and stoke more campaigns for more films. Because so much of it, is just bait that's hanging out there that's, oh, you would have got this, and you also would have got this. Oh, and did I mention you also would have got this? Ah, here's what you can win if you campaign even more, everyone. That's all I see this stuff as, is he's used some of the money that was for putting his version of Justice League together to go, oh, let me tease four other options. Let's float four options in front of you and see what floats your boat. Let's see what pushes on. Because obviously the last time we got the tease of Lex Luthor being out there. So that's one of the plot lines, along with Deathstroke. In the tone of this film, that should be solved instantly because you've got Cyborg who can track anyone where they are and you've got a Justice League who can take both of those characters out in five minutes flat. He should already be back in jail. That plot line's resolved itself right now. We said that on the last podcast, and it still stands, especially now that we've had even more descriptions of Cyborg's ability to track folk. How did he email Deathstroke? On the internet. Tough luck, my friend. You've just given yourself away. Luther Corp firewalls, though, you know, even Cyborg can't get through there. That's it. The nuclear code's easy to get by. Luther Corp firewall, fine. Maybe Deathstroke only gets his commissions via carrier pigeon. You can't hack a carrier pigeon. That's why I send all my communications via them. But yeah, all these things, the epilogue, for a film that was already very, very long, to throw on an epilogue of basically just teasing our what if, if I get this film, please campaign for this film, please. The only thing that was short of running at the end of this was a hashtag going on the bottom for people to easily put onto Twitter for it. Yeah, no, totally. And the original version of the Lex Luthor scene, well, the other version of the film, is teasing an Injustice League. Instead of saying, Batman is Bruce Wayne, he says, we need a league of our own. So it's maybe they were planning to set up a sequel where Lex Luthor would pull together a team of equivalents Mm. for the Justice League to fight because everyone loves that mirror images of the other team to fight (laughs) against that's always interesting right maybe not so much yeah the (laughs) dark future scene I think the film that features that heavily would be a bit of a slog because you know how it's going to end immediately don't you you know that Barry's going to run back in time and solve it and that's not really that interesting there's no real jeopardy there because you know that they're not going to keep the world in its destroyed state you know that's just not a possibility at all 
what is more interesting is them coming up against a threat that isn't as predictable as that. Yeah, and then Evil Superman. We kind of already had that. Why is he evil? We don't know. The anti-life equation, presumably. Something about Lois is dead. Something about his child. You get enough from that to know that the film might not be that interesting. So as a tease, it doesn't work. It's the anti-tease, in a way. <laughs> I did laugh when Bruce wakes up and then he shrugs it off immediately and then he goes to speak to Martian Manhunter. And it's just the way Martian Manhunter lands and Bruce is like, can I help you? It's just that yeah. shrugging, well, I guess this is just my life now. <laughs> Aliens are just going to land and have a chat with me, apparently. That's just life now. Cool. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, even that scene itself was like another weird... First of all, you're making that thing into a dream sequence rather than like a tease for a film. It's more like a, oh, warning of what's to come. Martian Manhunter coming down is like, well, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, he's after this equation thing and he's going to be coming back. You better be prepared. Anyway, <laughs> bye. It's like, what? Well, it's like, feel. really? It's like, you better be ready. Bye. See you later. Yeah. I thought I'd come along and introduce myself. Also, he's out there on like a stone floor with his bare feet that must be really cold i kept thinking that as i was watching i was like he's gonna be so cold his feet are gonna be cold oh bruce wayne has got the best under floor heating surely <laughs> not outside well bruce wayne course he has <laughs> who are you trying to fool he's got an entire bunker underneath that lake of course he's got <laughs> under floor heating come on man I don't know, of all the picky points, I'm not sure about Bruce Wayne standing on concrete. <laughs> I don't want to pick up. Sometimes weird things pop into your head when you're watching films. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. It's the Achilles underfloor heating of this film. You take apart the underfloor heating, the whole film just collapses. Once you can't believe in the underfloor heating, that's it. It's Batman's greatest weakness. You get rid of his shoes and then you just can't handle his feet being cold. <laughs> I think that was a new scene as well, though. And you can tell because Ben Affleck's a bit older. He looks a bit older than he does in the rest of the film. Supposedly that scene was shot in Snyder's own house, wasn't it? That was funny. Yeah, and the, the Green Lantern bit where they shot it in his driveway or something like that. Yeah, crazy. All the stuff they did. And then they meet the Green Lantern thing because Warner Brothers told them to. Because they've got a TV series coming up, I guess. I don't know. Does anybody care? It's very weird that they're trotting out this whole we give the audience enough credit to understand that different universes exist and different versions of different characters exist and then on the other hand they're being like we're going to cut green lantern in case you get confused but see this goes against what they've said about Zack snyder's justice league because they turn around and they go well this is supposed to be standalone it's just to give you the fans a chance to see what he originally wanted to put on screen so when he says i was going to originally have the green lantern at the end here show us a green lantern that shouldn't be a problem no You've already shown us one. All you do is you get either a CGI Green Lantern or you hire any actor that you pick or actress that you pick to be a Green Lantern. What you don't do is go and hire some Hollywood A-lister to do one scene as the Green Lantern because then fans will go, ooh, they've been announced as the Green Lantern. What you do is you just <laughs> you just have anywhere to go, a Green Lantern there. That's it, done. This is supposed to be a standalone, this is what would have happened if Zack had had 100% control of the universe. So let them have a Green Lantern. Like you say, they already had it in the opening bit. So what difference does it make? Well, the cast uh, Wayne T. Carr. I had to look that up there. I was looking that up as you were talking because I couldn't remember the name. I rest the, my case. But yeah, they cast <laughs> it. It was happening. It, it was going to be a thing. So, yeah, that's a bit weird. 
So I think we should wrap up now. I think we've torn this film to shreds, completely to shreds. So let's just get our final statements on the go. Aaron, what's your final statement on Zack Snyder's Justice League? You're never going to get to talk about it ever again. (laughs) Or you prefer it to the theatrical trailer. It made a lot more sense. It was more coherent. Everybody's actions seemed to have much greater motivation. It's still not, in my mind, a perfect fix to everything that was going on, but that was impossible in my mind. It couldn't be without creating a series of origin films going right back to the start and deciding what the themes and genres were really going to be. You couldn't fix the DC universe, but I think it offered me a better viewing experience than the original Justice League film did. I don't know if I would go back to watch it by preference to the other one simply because it is four hours but I'm certainly glad I saw it because I think it generally meant more to me than the original one. So ultimately did fix some issues and was worth the time I gave to it. But yes, cannot fix the entire DC film universe. I don't know if he was trying to do that, but either way. I'll end on a positive though. If I have to pick whether I would say Neil before or Rise Against, I will Neil before it, I think. Cool. And Chris, what are your final thoughts on it? I'm pretty much the same as I was at the beginning of this. I think this is better than what the theatrical release was. I do think it does some things better. I think there's some bits that the theatrical did better, but I think overall this is probably a better piece, all in all. Yeah, it was a thing that I watched. (laughs) (laughs) It very much exists as a piece of work. It does. It did happen, and you spent four hours on it. Twice. (laughs) You spent eight hours on it. You spent a working day watching this movie. I did. It's got some enjoyable bits, and I wouldn't have watched it twice if I absolutely hated it. Even for the notes, if I hate a thing, I will not watch it twice. (laughs) Well, there we go. Cool. I'm essentially echoing what the two of you said. I think it's a better film, although, as I've said throughout, there are things the theatrical version brings in that are improvements that would probably improve this as well if they just got, maybe not just edited in, but I guess that level of thought was applied to them and it became part of the whole piece. I think it would have been better overall. So maybe the perfect Justice League experience is written by Joss Whedon, directed by Zack Snyder. His writing talent and Snyder's visual talent, it would be unstoppable. It would be the biggest superhero thing ever made. It can't happen because Joss Whedon is an unpleasant human being and cannot be allowed near big projects ever again, basically. But I don't know. In that time, it could have happened, potentially. Who knows? But yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. I got a lot out of it. I got more out of it than I was expecting. And I think it's great that it exists. I think it's great that we have that alternative. And I'm happy with the fact that we're not going to see the rest of it. Although I would like to see the rest of it just as a curiosity. I'm quite happy with the fact that this is it. So maybe if you do a rewatch, just skip the epilogue. True, very true. Although it does have the scene where Bruce tells Clark that he bought the bank to get his house back. And it always makes me wonder, why didn't you just buy the house? Are the bank holding on to this house for some reason? I don't understand. Who was taking care of the cornfields while Martha wasn't there? Because the cornfields were looking great. We know who was doing it. It was Martian Manhunter. 
Of course, he was tending to the crop. That's what he was doing. It was the Martian all along. Every question you have about this film can be answered with, it was Martian Man on Earth. We know. That's what he does. He's everywhere. He's everyone. <laughs> In fact, I think he could be on this podcast, but which one of us is he? It's a question for another day. <laughs> so that's my final views on it. The end of my relationship with the Snyder Cut, I guess. I'll probably watch it again at some point. Need to be planned in, but I'll watch it again at some point in the future. Yes. So, Chris, thank you for joining for this long conversation about a long film. I'll get back to my brunch now. I think it's getting cold. Your brunch. Waiting in line for four hours for brunch. And Aaron, thanks for joining in this long discussion about a very long film. Indeed. I'm going to go and pick my music to play over me when I want to do something slow and dramatic. Good, you do that. That was our discussion about Zack Snyder's Justice League, a.k.a. The Snyder Cut. Thank you to Neil Stenson for the supplied music. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any major podcasting app. If you want to talk to us about it, hit us up on the socials on Twitter or Facebook under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, you can catch us next time on Neil Before Pod. Yeah.